Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 61 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. As always, I'm Trevor Dame. As always, I am joined by the other half of the show, the man who this week informed me that Through the Years is the 14th most popular wrestling podcast in all of Denmark, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, I I have to admit, both of us are probably, I mean, I know I have, walking on air since we learned that. I mean, 14th (laughs) in Denmark. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't it sort of like the sort of stat you'd make up like to make fun of a show? You know, yeah. you know, like like the Flight of the Concords are like what like the third most popular like parody folk duo in New Zealand or something. Like we're the we're the fourth most popular um fourteenth most popular wrestling podcast in Denmark. Um so to all of our Danish listeners Thank you so much. It's literally the greatest accolade we will ever achieve in our entire <laughs> lives. And, you know, um, there's nothing – I mean, it's it's exceeded my wildest expectations for myself. So thank you so much, and, and please keep listening. When the pandemic ends, we will definitely be doing a live show from there. Matt, the only, the only explanation I can, I can have to, to why we are popular in Denmark is just people quickly scan over and misinterpret the, my last name, Dame, as Dane and think, oh, it's a fellow Dane. Finally, a Danish Ring of Honor wrestling podcast. And then they listen for five seconds and get disappointed. That is true. Although I would probably, um, I'd probably argue with the with the distinction that we are quote popular in Denmark, but <laughs> we are the fourteenth most popular wrestling podcast in Denmark. So yeah, hey, exactly. I mean, hey. I'm going to get so many ladies, Matt. Now, I mean, this this is finally the line I drop when I go out that. To everybody. You're, anyway. mo- you're moving to Copenhagen stat. <laughs> exactly. Um, if you want to listen to the 14th most popular wrestling podcast in Denmark, as always, we are on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which you can search for by typing in Pro Wrestling Only with a bunch of other great shows, including like Shimmer Herstory, which, you know, Stephen Graham we've had recently on, and a bunch of other great podcasts on that network. But if you just want us, if you're if you're that weird, if you're if you're Danish and you just love us. We have our own feed on pretty much every podcast um, provider, you know, Apple, iTunes, whatever. Just type T-H-R-O-H, the years, through the years. We have our own feed, and this will now be 61 episodes, so tons of shows. I, I, I just got a tweet a couple of days ago saying that someone started listening last spring, and they just got through everything. So, I, um... yeah. Yeah. If you start a year ago, you could you could this could become a weekly show for you. That's the way the show becomes weekly. If you just start late and then dole it out. That's exactly right. Um, I mean, you would have to be listening to, I guess, the first episode now. So, um, but go for it. Do it. Um, yeah. It'll ruin your life. Um, now, um, <laughs> I feel like our tagline should be like a clip of Krusty the Clown going, "Now that's Danish." <laughs> you remember that? Oh, that's good. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, some news happened between the last Ring of Honor show we covered and this one, and we always like to go through that. So first off, very minor little thing. Um, PW Insider wrote at the time, Jay Lethal will be making his zero one one debut on March 15th at Corican Hall in Tokyo, Japan. And Matt, indeed he did. I looked up, he was in a tag team with C.W. Anderson, another Ring of Honor alumni. According to Cage Match, they only have one match listed for him. I don't know if really Jay Lethal really went to Japan to work one zero one one match, but... I mean, he did work for uh, Japan, so even Jay Lethal, this kind of shows where his career was even launching here, where he was getting, uh, you know, 
his first tour of Japan, I think. Maybe he was on vacation and they were like, hey, want to wrestle? Um, also another these things were happening quite frequently at this point but going to the pro wrestling torch they wrote before the march 14th raw went live rhino beat a local wrestler in heat matches viscera beat simon dean maven and molly holly beat val venus and victoria in a mixed tag and chris masters beat jimmy rave of ring of honor fame so uh it seems like Chris Masters was beating a lot of Ring of Honor guys at this point, which I'm sure was just a coincidence. But it seems like almost a bunch of the shows recently we've had like guys getting cat calls for the fans from losing like Master Lock challenges, and this was another one apparently. I remember when I um, when I went to my first ROH show a few months after this, and someone got somebody in a full Nelson, and someone in the crowd just yelled Master Lock, and I remember getting such a kick out of that because it's the full Nelson, but they may change the name, <laughs> and that Isn't was that funny. We- isn't that weird? Like when you're growing up as a wrestling fan, like the first time you see a move and it's a move, you know, by one name and someone just calls it another name and you're like, you're allowed to do that. Like it feels wrong. Like I remember when someone, when I figured out that like growing up as a young Canadian, of course, big Bret Hart fan that like, Oh, someone was doing the sharpshooter before the sharpshooter and it was called the scorpion Deathlock, And I was like, what? Like, that camp, I, I felt like my hero had stabbed me in 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 the heart. Matt, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was tough. Yeah, I mean, I, I was watching Sting a little before Brett started doing the sharpshooter, so I was like, "Wow, he, you just get to call it your own name? Like that's 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 brash." <laughs> Brett the brash <laughs> man heart. The excellence of executions using somebody else's gun, Matt. This it's just upsetting my whole worldview. And but. even in, even in the WWF, Ron Ronnie Garvin used it, and I don't even remember if that had a name when he did it. Huh? I, I don't even remember that. Wow, I, I should look into that tonight after the show because that's how exciting my Saturday nights are. Um, so going to the Pro Wrestling Torch again. This is another story we've seen little drips and drabs of the last few episodes, but the Torch wrote. One WWE source told The Torch several weeks ago that the feeling among upper management in WWE is that while they took a look at Samoa Joe and CM Punk on the recommendation of Mick Foley, they felt that both wrestlers had, quote, body issues, unquote. Punk apparently received the same message as he is visibly adding muscle to his body and his look is changing rapidly. He also started wearing tights. Both factors could help him get the WWE job he wants. Well, it sounds like WWF is the one who gave them body issues. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it weird that like – like think of that last sentence – or let me just go um, – the last two sentences. He has also started wearing tights. Both factors could help him get the WWE job he wants. Imagine like one of the two stumbling blocks between someone getting a job with WWE and not is do they wear tights or basketball shorts? Like I mean – It seems like you could it, probably just hire the guy and tell him to wear the tights. Exactly. And that, and that, solves, that solves that problem right there. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 it's, but I mean, this was something, a story I will, we will see more of in the coming months where Punk obviously gets the WWE job and Samoa Joe kind of publicly on his blog in, in a future episode, he kind of goes through a, a crisis of faith, like being like, why isn't any big company signing me? He, he has this kind of period between now and when he goes to TNA where he's like, why isn't WWE or New Japan or whatever interested? And, and he, and he gets pretty down publicly actually, which, I mean, I would have been down too if I was Joe because he was one of the most talented wrestlers, in my opinion, in the entire planet at this point. And people were just looking at him and going, eh, not really. Which is crazy to me. By the end of 2005, a lot of people were saying Joe was the best wrestler in the world. 
and probably even at this point, yeah, and it is ridiculous. Like, it's still ridiculous that WWE never signed him until, what, 2016, 2015? I don't even remember. One of those two years. Something crazy like that. And then we'll get to one of the bigger stories that between the, the last show and this one. Going back again to the PW Torch, uh, the personal websites for AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels announced that both would be working 12 Ring of Honor dates from July through December. The post was soon pulled, and Bill Barons told the webmaster that the bookings were actually for Ring of Honor regular Jimmy Rave, not Styles or Daniels. Neither Styles nor Daniels are officially set for Ring of Honor dates yet, but it's expected both will work Ring of Honor later this year. The announcement of future dates may have been a mistake or may have been a premature announcement because Ring of Honor wants to save the official word for special circumstances. Styles told Extreme Mayhem Video that he is thrilled to be returning to Ring of Honor later this year. He said he is proud to have been a big part of the early stages of Ring of Honor and that Ring of Honor is the place to be. He also said that without the X Division, he doesn't think TNA would be where it is today. He said he'd be proud to eventually be a 16-time X Division champion. Regarding Rob Feinstein, AJ said that everyone has their own problems and he has gotten over it. A short time later, he called Michael Moore a, quote, I'll just say an, uh, a word that starts with that. That's a derogatory, horrible slang for a gay person. Oh, and yeah. Said Wait, he, AJ, AJ Styles used that word? Exactly. I know. Me? It's shocking. And he says that he doesn't like him. Finally, AJ added that he's been reading The Death of WCW, and he's glad Hulk Hogan isn't in TNA. Um, so, he AJ, forgi- so he forgives certain accusations, but not Michael Moore. <laughs> Yes, um, Rob Feinstein has his own problems, but he, he's gotten over it. Michael Moore, not a good person, apparently. Um, death of W, uh, although I, I feel like that last line's almost like the slightest particle of karma because, you know, that last line, like, after saying some pretty shitty things, being like, um, yeah, at least Hulk Hogan isn't in TNA, like, <laughs> but, um, so going to a PW Insider for a little follow up on this. Mike Johnson wrote, there's a ton of heat on NWA Wildside's Bill Barons right now over Barons sending out dates for AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels with Ring of Honor to their respective websites. Barons handles their outside bookings. The internal feeling in Ring of Honor is that the buzz about their returns, which Ring of Honor's Gabe Sapolsky refused to comment on last weekend, hurt interest for the company's show this past weekend. It's said to be at the point that Sapolsky doesn't want to deal with Barons right now. If anything, it gave Ring of Honor fans something to look forward to, but it certainly did spoil any surprise. So, Matt, I think the show he was talking about, about it hurting, was this show. I really have a hard time believing that anyone was like, I was going to, I want to see Ring of Honor come to Connecticut, but, oh, AJ Styles is going to come back to the promotion in an indeterminate, like, months later? Well, then I don't need to buy a ticket right now. Like, I mean, I just, I don't even think at this point, Connecticut until after the show, it was booked for a follow-up date. So the idea that, look, I can understand if you're Ring of Honor being pissed off that you want to have these big surprise returns of these guys, you want to control the announcement yourself, and the idea that someone like their agent, Bill Barons, just flubbed it and put up all their dates and basically gave it away, I can understand being really pissed off by that. But the idea of saying, like, that hurt ticket sales for this show, I, I have a hard time swallowing that. No, I mean, that's like what Dave Meltzer always talks about, how promoters come up with like a bajillion different excuses for low ticket sales. That one is quite the stretch. Yeah, but I'm, again, I can completely understand being frustrated and being like, oh, yeah, of God course. damn it, like, for, why, for, why for, did you put this on? For reasons, love- for reasons other than the ticket sales on this particular show. 
Yeah. And I, I, I did love Bill Barron's though, trying to carve by saying, Oh, uh, those were all dates for Jimmy Ray. <laughs> like, oh, good, good, nice try, Bill. But, uh, uh, no, apparently that wasn't the case. But that brings us to the show we are covering tonight proper. It is Ring of Honor Back to Basics. Took place March 12th, 2005 at the CT Sports Center in Woodbridge, Connecticut in front of a non-observer reported crowd of 500 fans. This is the rare time where the observer did not have like any kind of results or recap of this show. I don't know why. I, I looked over both issues in this time period. It wasn't in either of them. So for once, I can't use their thing on this. No, um, no subscribers went to the show, I guess. But by the way, <laughs> am I correct in this being the first time that this was the fourth straight weekend with an ROH show? It probably was. I'm horrible with that kind of stuff, but it probably was. I mean, Ring of Honor, this was the year they really were ramping up. Um, before we go into the show, a couple points. First off, I, I will just, I'll, I'll say this at the start and we'll see how it plays out. After this show happened, Gabe Sapolsky told the Torch that this show was one of his favorite Ring of Honor events they had ever done up to this point. So, as some, as two people that have just watched, um, all of the shows. Six, yes. We, we, we are in a unique position of having this fairly fresh in our minds, even though it's taken us a period of years, but to, so we have a, we'll see how that plays out. Um, and then also, Gabe was apparently really happy, not with just how the, uh, the show turned out critically, but also the, uh, the crowd and the size of it, because, uh, the Ring of Honor Newswire actually reported afterwards, last Saturday's event in Woodbridge, Connecticut was an example of Ring of Honor rewarding the fans for a great response. Ring of Honor entered the show with no intentions of returning to Connecticut. However, after a strong walk-up despite storm warnings, and more importantly, great crowd reactions, Ring of Honor booked a return date on the spot for July 16th. The Connecticut crowd came to have fun and not overanalyze things or yell smart comments to try to get themselves over, and as a result, the guys in the ring fell off that energy and went the extra mile to put on a truly memorable event. Jeez, I, wonder who, Honor, I wonder who wrote that. <laughs> Ring of Honor officials o- always say that Ring of Honor will go as far as the fans take it, and this is a prime example of that. Thank you, Woodbridge. Matt, we, yeah, like exactly like you were cheekily saying, who could have wrote that? We've heard Gabe multiple times on recent months of, of this show like, basically put over certain fans by saying they're not trying to get themselves over basically implying that other fans in other markets maybe they're more regular markets you know are more concerned with putting themselves over which he's not wrong i mean (laughs) it's not completely wrong but i would also say it's kind of the cost of being popular because the more you run a certain place the more demanding those fans get but i mean yes these connecticut fans might have been Less cynical, less jaded, less spoiled, so to speak. But at the same time, there's a reason why they kept running their biggest shows in New Jersey and Chicago and places like that. And Woodbridge, Connecticut did not become the mecca of Ring of Honor. Like, you know, yes, they're jaded. There are jaded fans, but jaded fans are often still, if you scratch beneath that surface, really some of your most hardcore dedicated and loyal fans right they come out and like the, the listen like the i know a lot of people didn't like roh crowds at the time i remember getting defensive about it even but like those crowds I mean, by and large roh crowds made the shows better like there yeah. were occasions where it didn't always work out that way but even up until this point we've like they've had their crowds are good <laughs> like they have good respectful and um you know crowds that that really appreciate good wrestling most of the time 
I remember one thing early on in the show, we were like, well, when are the, the annoying chants going to start? And Matt, like, I don't think we've gotten to a point yet, and I thought we would have, like, from my vague memories of this era, of, like, oh, a lot of really annoying chants, you know, or, like, like going to more what Gabe says about crowds that were, seemed to be there more to get themselves over a yell small art comments. And yeah, you occasionally hear something, but I don't think we've gotten to that point yet where we've heard, a, uh, we've seen a show yet where the fans have really, like, derailed the show or made it all about them, where I felt like they were ignoring something that deserved better attention, like, on a regular basis. It was certainly nothing like in 2009 when they had um, Austin Aries versus Petey Williams and everyone kept chanting Twinkies every time t- Todd Sinclair count, made a count. And, and Homicide was in the crowd near me, and he was doing it too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like I'm not saying they never get there, but I'm sort of kind of surprised that we've been we've watched you know from 2002 on, and we're into 2005, and I we haven't reached that point yet. So yes, and I should and I should clarify. I remember Homicide laughing and enjoying the chance a lot. I can't say 100 percent that he was actually saying Twinkies, but he oh. definitely he definitely was enjoying them. <laughs> Don't, don't, don't tease me like that, Matt. God damn it. it that was going to be a dream. I, we, got, we got to ask Justin and uh, Tom Feely, because they were with me, um, to verify whether or not he was saying Twinkies or just laughing. Okay. Um, so we open the show backstage with Colt Cabana. He's got his tuxedo t-shirt on. It's time for good times, great memories, his backstage talk show. Uh, Colt is excited about both his matches tonight, because he has two. We'll get into that in a little bit. And introduces his guest, Dun and Marcos, the Ring Crew Express. Dun and Marcos say they're rocking like docking. One of the, not the first time I believe they've said that, but always a joy to hear them but, say that. But Cabana loved it. He was like, hey. I like that. Like he stopped them in in their tracks to say how much he enjoyed the phrase "rocking like docking." <laughs> it was almost like he was surprised they were going to say anything new. He's like, "Hey, you got another line. This is this is a good bit." But um, at this point, Nigel McGinnis, his Colts tag partner for tonight, he walks in. He's annoyed that Colt is screwing around with a talk show when they have a tag title shot tonight. He's also annoyed that Colt is working a singles match earlier on the show, and then he basically kind of badgers Colt into getting up, abandoning the talk show for now, and uh, going out to exercise with him. So just kind of – this is one of, I guess, two – I would argue maybe three storylines that Ring of Honor had at this point between friends that had tension between them. Like you got Colt and Nigel. You got Spanky and Gibson. All that's being played a little bit less tension-y at this point. And you had um, Carino CM Punk, which kind of gets uh, its finish in a – it's non-finish tonight on this show. So – Kind of three of those, of these kind of simmering tensions between partners or friends. Almost like there's uh, a little bit of a rut going on. <laughs> no, I'm, ser- I'm serious, though. Like, a, like it's, it's not terrible, but, like, you do kind of get that vibe a little bit. Yeah, I mean, to have it, – it's something we don't see that often at, up to this point of, like, the, basically the same storyline playing out in slightly different ways in triplicate on the same shows. Yeah, that definitely – you know, if that was WWE or something, you, we would call that out too, which is, you know, if, if the, you saw the same exact finish three times on a show, you'd be like, that's weird. And right. yeah, that was booking-wise what was happening here. Yeah, uh, We jump to elsewhere backstage where Lacey's version of Special K is hanging out. Deranged is doing a headstand for no reason because this Special K is wacky. Uh, Lacey is frustrated with these goofs and says tonight is their chance to win the Special K name. Lacey calls her the smartest businesswoman in Ring of Honor and says they can make a lot of money marketing the Special K name. Lacey then calls out Daisy Hayes and says that she, in addition to being the smartest businesswoman, she's also the best women's wrestler and she's going to prove that tonight. 
and then deranged falls out of his headstand. So you got, you got to cross all of the uh, all the storyline points, and that I guess was the only reason for the promo. So I guess they did it. They did their job. Yeah, and they're kind of uh, you know hinting at the transfer coming up a little later, which is Lacey becoming more like the businesswoman and less of you know less of just one of the raver girls and more of like the serious. She's kind of going to corporate these guys up a bit. Um, that brings us to the opening match of the show. Colt Cabana defeated Delirious via pinfall in 7 minutes, 48 seconds, after hitting his spinning crucifix drop, which Gabe on the show calls the Twirly Bird. I don't know if that was the official name or not. Um, Matt, this is one of the uh, – this is a rare match, I thought, in the sense of – I think this is one of the rare times. I'm, I'm sure it's happened more than this time that Colt Cabana is kind of playing the straight man in a comedy match. Right. And I was. Right, I wrote the same thing. It's interesting to see him on like the receiving end of the comedy spots. Yeah. Wh- so, what did you think about it? It was okay. Um, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't like um, it never got out of first gear. You know, it wasn't like like a hot opener. You know, they 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 clearly went for like a fairly low key kind of an opening match, um, but. I was happy to see Delirious, I think, making it to the East Coast for the first time, at least on a main show, right? He had never been on a non-Midwest show, as far as I can remember. Um, but, you know, they, they did, like, little their little comedy spots. Delirious did his little, like, turtle defense move. So Cabana put him on the, uh, on the turnbuckle, and he responds with a, quote, lizard pose on the top rope. Um, you know, they, Delirious does his little, like, button, like this, like, telephone cradle thing. Um uh, and then at a certain point, uh, Colt is mad that Delirious keeps telling the ref that Colt pulled his mask in tight. So he turns to the crowd and does a, a jerk-off hand motion. So is Cabana uh, – is that a comedy spot or is Cabana getting frustrated and serious? Um, but yeah, um, Delirious goes for what looked like almost a Styles clash and that's when Cabana escaped and did the twirly bird. Um, it was – it was just okay. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I probably would have, I probably would have expected actually a little bit more entertainment from this one. Honestly, I actually I think I like this a little bit more than you. I thought it was like above average as a comedy opener. Um, I think it's uh, probably if I just watched a bunch of Delirious, which I haven't been watching a bunch of Delirious, the novelty would kind of wear off because. You know, there's a lot of the spots you see in this match that that anyone that would watch a lot of Delirious around this point would be like staples. The spots where he sticks his fingers in his mouth and licks them and then rubs them on his opponent's face. The kind of gibberish where every few words you can make out some English and it gets the crowd laughing. You know, running around the ring and in and out of it randomly. Like you mentioned, the the complaint about being like his hair being pulled or 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 or, th- or eye pokes or things like that when his opponent has yet to come anywhere near him. Like it's all. This is like the first time I feel like on a main card he really got to kind of do the entire delirious comedy act. So having not seen it in years, prob- I, I, I don't think I've seen him do it in years. Um, I was I enjoyed it, and it was again kind of interesting to see Colt Cabana actually play the straight man. I mean, he still did some of his own comedy spots and was usually jovial, but he did get frustrated a couple times during the match. And he did again, like we said at the start, he basically had to be the straight guy for a delirious. So I thought there was a bit of a novelty there, but yeah, overall, it's not like an incredible match or anything. I mean, it it didn't even go eight minutes. He held back. Cabana held back a bit. I'm assuming because he had another match later. 
Yes, and, and to make clear, Gabe on commentary, which is – this is the second last show for Mark Nolte on commentary. It's him and Gabe. And Gabe says that Colt requested the singles match so he could climb the singles rank. So basically he's trying to um, sell – justify Colt doing double duty tonight even though his other match tonight is a very important match in kayfabe terms. It's a tag title shot. But the idea is that you know Colt after losing those two title shots to Aries, he's in such a hurry to try and climb the ranks. He doesn't even want to wait for a singles match so he wanted double duty on this show. Yeah, and, and I should, should mention that probably the real reason is they were sort of working with a lighter crew on this show. There was no there was no Austin Aries. There was no Brian Danielson. There was no uh, Embassy uh, no Alex Shelley. No Alex Shelley. There was no Vordell Walker, um, who clearly <laughs> was a big part of recent shows. Um, no, but like you know, that's that's a significant chunk of people that are not there. So you had a couple guys doing double duty here. No Steve Carino. Um, <laughs> so so you had somebody doing double duty for that too. But we'll get to that later. And uh, speaking actually in a weird, weird way of Steve Carino, our next match would be the Ring Crew Express of Dunn and Marcos defeating Alex Law and Ricky Landell in five forty six. When good transition. Marcos- yeah, when Marcos pinned Law after hitting a senton off the shoulders of Dunn as Dunn was sitting on the top rope. So, of course, Alex Law and Ricky Landell were Steve Carino's students. And in a strange case, which we'll get to later, they were on the show. Steve Carino wasn't, despite being advertised for the main event. Um, I thought this was the second of probably, I would say, four match. The first four matches all have some aspect of guys doing things you're not quite – they don't usually do. And in this sense, it was like – the Ring Crew Express in a match where they were are actually like the veterans and the harder book team. Right. A jobber match where Ring Crew Express are not the jobbers. Exactly. So just yeah. like Colt being the straight man, yeah, you now have the Ring Crew Express being like the team that's going to win a jobber match. Although that said, uh, the Ring Crew Express, I would say, gave them like half the offense. They were pretty generous to these guys, even though, you know, if I was the Ring Crew Express, I might have been more selfish and been like, look. Your students, we never get to dominate anybody. Please, we're just going to beat you up. But I, I say that, I would say they went about 50-50 on this. Um, I thought this match was average. It was fine. It was short, and it was decent action. But you could tell, especially with the Carino students, you know, they th- that they looked like students. They were a little hesitant, a little green. Their execution wasn't always perfectly clean. They weren't really doing, you know, showing off any personality, which granted is kind of hard when you only have six minutes in a tag match. But, you know, they looked like students. They had the basic mechanics down, but they weren't perfect at it. And they were, they're, they're not fully formed yet. And, even with that, um, I think Ricky Landell probably showed a little more than Dunn and Marcos, but um, a little, a little, did, a little more than Law, you mean, right? I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm a little more than Law, and uh, they did have one cool double team. I thought Law and Landell, where they each did an arm ringer on one of the one person's arm, so they're each having one arm and arm ringer, and then they kind of crossed them in front of their opponents and then kind of dragged them down, like, it's kind of hard to describe, but it was a, it was a cool little move, and um, only other couple things I want to say before I throw it to you, Matt, first off, uh, Dunn and Marcos do a double bulldog, where they where they each start a bulldog in opposite corners and run towards each other, and as they jump in the air to do the bulldogs, they high-five each other in midair, one, that is awesome, and two, like, if anyone in AEW listens to this, um, the best friends, you should slip Dunn and Marcos like a couple hundred bucks and buy the rights to that move. I mean, you could just steal it, but like, because I think that would be a perfect move for the best friends when Trent heals from his injury. Like, it fits with their character. It's just a cool move. Like, just tweet, bulldog. just just tweet it at them, because because you know your Twitter's more popular than the show. So just tweet it at them. It'll 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 it'll, it'll totally happen. 
you know what, Matt? That's just a showing that there's no accounting for taste. But <laughs> it finally, Matt, one interesting, funny, goofy mode on commentary. So Gabe at one point, you know, he's always trying to sell stakes for matches, which I always love. And uh, he says at one point, you know, Dunn and Marcos have, you know, their, their recent wins. They've risen to the heads of the ring crew. He says if they lose here, they might be demoted in the ring crew. And I just thought for a second, how does that even make logic? Like, so – who gets to set up the ring? Like who gets to lead that process is determined by who wins wrestling matches. Like, like, like he was trying to sell, like they now run the ring crew because they've won a couple matches recently. And I just thought I, I need someone to, I, I would really would have loved to have heard Gabe try to like explain how that makes sense. Well, well my, my interpretation is they, they run the ring crew because um, the, uh, the carnage crew are not there anymore. Um, but I guess in kayfabe terms, Carnage Crew had nothing to do with the ring crew, right? So I don't know. Yeah, it was Outcast Killers were the other regular workers we would see that would be portrayed. Uh, and of course, then yeah. I guess the story there was Prince Nana took them out of the ring crew, so that was why they joined the embassy. Right. So I guess you know everybody's gone. So probably ring crew, especially the entire ring crew at this point. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, we you I wrote a lot of the same stuff you did. I think I, I liked the match a little bit worse than you because. Yes, um, the uh, Carino students really did look like students, and um, I don't know, that took a lot away from it for me. They just didn't seem ready for this. You know, I don't want to be mean, like, you know, like it's, you know, they're learning. But, you know, Landell's kicks were pretty weak, you know. His timing was okay, I suppose, but, like, you know, the the forearms were weak. Um, I I agree with you, that one double-team move that they did where they crisscrossed the arms and dropped down on Marcos was cool, but, you know, it just just wasn't much. Um, You know, uh... Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much it. It was just it was a squ- it was a squash match that wasn't totally a squash because they let the losing team get half the offense and the offense wasn't good. So um, <laughs> you know what are you gonna do? It happens. And the thing that continues to happen when I look at live reports for like every show is like it seems like there's it's for, for really regularly there's always a fan that's like wow I'm shocked at how over the ring crew expresses. They were always a team it felt like that were more over. Then they're pushed. Not that I'm saying they should have been pushed hard, but they always get more of a reaction. I think, like I would say, eight out of ten shows than you'd think they would get. They should have have been pushed harder. I think. Yeah, they are going to get that Carnage Crew feud coming up, which is like honest to goodness feud for them. But yeah, I mean that that might actually be like their most prominent role. Yeah, but wait until you see those matches. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. we quickly see highlights of Austin Aries defending the Ring of Honor title against Vordell Walker in FIP. Uh, Gabe voiceover tells us that Aries is currently defending the Ring of Honor title in Europe, as his goal is to be an old-school type champion who will take the title to different regions and territories. Um, yeah, so he was wrestling in uh, Europe at this point, I think like Austria or something, and I was looking over the results. He he wrestles in a bunch of places. Like I think a month or two later, he's uh, wrestling in, in Super Crazy and I think like Ricky Marvin or something in a three-way in Mexico defending the title there. So he definitely was, you know, uh, Joe did it a little bit, but Aries definitely took it to another level of, you know, taking the Ring of Honor title and having a kind of a quote-unquote official defenses of it in other indies. Yeah, he, that, 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 that's, that's the mark. That's the mark that this title reign left on the title. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't one of the longest title reigns in ROH history, but you know, he he left his stamp on it, which you know we can appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. And coming up next, our third match of the show: Spanky defeated Jack Evans via pinfall in seven minutes twenty seven seconds after he hit a top rope sliced bread number two. 
Matt, before I throw it to you, I'll give you a report from uh, Sean Radican from the Pro Wrestling Torch. I'll just give you this quote. He wrote, and, you know, everyone's having a right to their own opinion, but we'll see how it compares or contrasts to ours. He wrote, quote, this match was one of the most spectacular – no, wait, let me just say. He said, uh, this match was the best eight-minute match I've ever seen. Matt, was this the best eight-minute match you've ever seen, excepting that technically, apparently, it was seven minutes, 27 seconds? Nope, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> do you want to give more quotes, or, sh- or, sh- or should I continue? Oh, okay, I'll, I'll do one which I yeah. thought was a little <laughs> funny. Um, the, he wrote in his live report, one of the standout moments of Saturday's Woodbridge event was a spot between Jack Evans and Spanky. Uh, Evans threw Spanky outside, then went to the opposite side of the ring and did two running handsprings like a gymnast doing a floor routine, followed by a flip backward over the rope onto Spanky. Torch contributor Sean Radican reports, it was one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen in a wrestling ring. So when I read this before I rewatched the show, I thought, What's he talking about? Like, like, oh, it's going to be something cool. And then I realized after I watched the match, it was just a space flying tiger drop, which granted is a really cool move. Yeah, with a, like, few, a few extra flips at the end. But yes, you're right. It was pretty much just that. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to be something like he was describing that I couldn't quite imagine. That was something I'd never seen before. It was basically something that Jack Evans, I think, has done before this even, which is, right. yeah, his variation on that, which again, really cool move. And I imagine if you've never seen that move before, would be mind blowing, but not to be the some like, pushing up my glasses on my nose nerd like well clearly this person hasn't watched the great sasuke in 1995 but i mean stop doing an an impression of me (laughs) i i I was a little disappointed just because i had like i'm reading this doing the research i was like getting my hopes up like oh man i'm gonna see the coolest thing ever i can't even imagine it and then i was like oh wait no i i definitely have seen this before but still uh what do you think about the match itself, though? I mean, I, I can't say I didn't. I mean, I liked it. You know, it was fun. Um, uh, there wasn't much of a storyline to it, and it was short, and it was not the smoothest. But, you know, they did fun stuff. Uh, you know, Jack Evans is always entertaining. This wasn't his best performance in recent weeks, but it was still fun. And, you know, Spanky's been, been pretty solid lately. You know, Spanky is still, you know, I mean, uh, Evans is still doing a lot of um, personality work, character work, which always helps. You know, he immediately comes out and yells that he's, the greatest athlete to ever come out of Washington, and then he break dances and looks at Spanky and goes, "Boom! You can't do that." At Spanky, <laughs> so Spanky uh, does a little jig in response, which the crowd does enjoy, and they actually decided that it was Jack who got served um, in this case. Um, the little jig served him, and then uh, and then Jack immediately says, "Come on now, kid! I don't play. I don't play." But then they do, in fact, dance and lock legs. Um, but, of course, Evans betrays Spanky and gets him in a small package. And Gabe says, Jack Evans, for the first time, outsmarting somebody. So um, I don't know who you feel worse for there, Jack or Spanky. Um, I wrote that in my notes and I just wrote, ouch. Yeah. Um, but no, but like they, they, they do like cool stuff. Like Spanky monkey flipped Evans over the top rope to the outside. Um, and Spanky celebrated by dancing and doing a somersault in the ring. Um then they get they get intense, and it actually, even at a certain point, um, Spanky whips Jack into the barricade, and Jack does like a big like flip bump where he goes over the rails, and he cuts up his back real bad. So we're like, so we're back to the uh, dangerously sharp guardrails, I guess. It had been a while since we'd seen that, yeah. But uh, but there we go. Um, so Spanky's working over the back, um, and Evans uh, uses like flexibility to get to you know to get to the ropes, and Nolte says. Who else makes it to the ropes from that position? 
And I was gonna, I was saying, having watched a lot of ROH and having seen very few tap outs to the Boston Crab, I'd say almost everyone um, <laughs> makes it to the ropes from that position because um, it was just the Boston Crab. Um, but um, Spanky does like a, a walk up the ropes into a slice spread number two. But Evans actually does a cartwheel to escape the hold, and I thought that was really cool. Um, he does that that space flying tiger drop thingy that you mentioned. Um, which, well, I mean, it's a really cool spot. Like always, when, you know, it's not like, oh my God, my life, my life has changed, but it's a really cool spot. Um, they and do as a kid. The first time I saw the space flying tiger drop by anybody, I forget who it was. Even I remember like losing my shit. That was like one of those, oh my God, that's such a crazy thing moves. I feel like for me, it was Hakushi who I first saw. I, 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 honestly, that's probably is who it is for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, um, like the Jack Evans does a bunch of standing flips and Gabe calls it a Phoenix corkscrew before admitting that he doesn't actually know how to describe it. So, <laughs> you know, hey, I'll give him some credit for, for coming up with that. Yeah. It's the Phoenix corkscrew. Um, but um, Spanky knocks Jack off when he tries the 630, and then he does a slice spread off the ropes and gets the three count. I think you could tell from my description, it was fun. Like, they did, they did fun stuff. They're just like, it didn't really hold together in any sort of way that made it bigger than the sum of its parts. But I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah, um, part of me wonders why this match was so short, and um, and maybe like we'll get in again. We we keep alluding to this. We'll get to it later. Wh- why Steve Crino no showed the main event, but part of me want just to tell you what happens. A Spanky ends up replacing him in the main event. Part of me wonders, did Gabe by this point in the show know that Crino was out because that might explain why Spanky only worked seven minutes here with a. Jack Evans, or maybe that was just they thought that was the best amount of time for a Jack Evans singles match. I, I, don't think, know. I think it's because they knew they needed time on the DVD to have the history of Special K video. <laughs> By the way, Matt, that is going to be the image of the show, that Special K 2003 to 2005. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, we'll get to that later, too. But um, um, yeah, I, I thought this was a good match. I, I agree pretty much completely with you about how, you know, it wasn't necessarily the cleanest offense. I, I thought it was the third straight match to start the show where guys doing something a little different. Like, you usually don't expect uh, Jack Evans to get like 50% of the offense against a fairly major name on the indies. Although, we did see recently with the Alex Shelley match, too, where Shelley, I don't know if he gave him 50%, but, he, you know, he he didn't squash him the way you would say, like, a Samoa Joe or, or Danielson would do. And that's nothing against how Joe or Danielson would treat him because I think we agree those were spectacularly fun matches. But definitely this – in a couple of recent uh, Jack Evans matches, we've seen guys actually try and give him more offense and let him be a little more credible and, and kind of work e- a bit closer to even. Um, Jack Evans, you know, his moves were cool as usual. I thought his bumps were, were really good except my one problem with Jack Evans' bumps, and I've noticed this – occasionally on shows but especially on this show is sometimes he takes such big bumps for moves that you can almost see him like preloading the bump before the move hits and sometimes like he'll take a bump so big that's almost like like the move has no weight like like a guy will do like a little clothesline he'll do like the craziest corkscrew flip land and and, and it's hard to kind of keep your um suspension of disbelief that like he was actually doing that as a bump and not just doing that a jump and a flip because sometimes he will do like just the craziest you know flip bumps 
for relatively moderate moves. And there, there was a bit of that I found in this match where there was a couple moves where they didn't even look like Spanky was hitting that much and Jack Evans was flying around and kind of almost in a weird way calling attention to that. I love that. But, ex- I love that expression, preloading the bumps. <laughs> yeah, like something you can almost tell like he's just kind of, you know, like, like, you know, kind of tensing up or crouching down or starting to, you know, whatever, just going to start to jump into a move before the guy even hits so he can just do the flip. And obviously uh, the flips are cool. I love the flips, but occasionally you can do it, overdo it a little bit. But yeah, if you just want another all action kind of no story match. And one of the things we always talk about, like with the, uh, we did the, you know, we're famous for, unfortunately, the uh, counting the, every show in a row that had man-on-woman violence, and we talked about all the things we should have and shouldn't have kept track of, like we should have kept track of if we had known ahead of time the number of shows where um, Gabe called Nigel McGuinness's arm submission that arm submission without giving it a name. <laughs> I think another thing we should have kept track of is the number of people who have gotten cut by the sharp sheet metal ROH guardrails, because like you said, Matt, Jack gets like a very long cut on his back, which was probably no fun at all. It looked like a, like a real thin, long cut. And uh, having done a little bit of research for like the next couple shows, I think I, I vaguely, I think it's for like a show or two down the line. Like we will have another story of maybe a fan cutting themselves on one of these guardrails coming up soon. So I yeah. mean, it's going to be like, it's a lot. Uh, but, but, it'll, it'll probably be double digits by the time they fucking get to better guardrail signs. But the last time I remember it was the year earlier where Joe did it at the second anniversary show and his his, his hand was just like terrifying. Yeah, and he had to get the, like, the tape put on it and everything. And, and, Joe yeah, and, you get to see, and you see him looking at his hand and being like, oh. Yeah, so it's, it's, it, it's crazy. Like if it happens to one person, maybe you say it's a fluke. If it happens to two or three, like at that point – I realize Ring of Honor was not a big budget promotion, but just not even buy a new guardrail sign. Just someone get like a sander or something. Do something, you know. Well, well, well. I do have to. In their defense, I do think these are different than the original ones and less sharp. I think they've already changed them by by now. Less sharp. Yes. Well, I'm just saying. Like that's why. That's why yeah. when when they first got them, like you heard it a lot. Yeah. You saw it a lot, and now it kind of happens sometimes. But it shouldn't. It should, I mean, it's it's clearly still too dangerous. Yeah. Um, after the match, uh, Gary Michael Capetta makes his way to the ring and he grabs a mic. He congratulates Spanky on the win. He says that he has some news for Spanky. Gary goes on to say that Ring of Honor will be returning to Boston and that actually draws a few boos from the crowd. So these Connecticut fans, not a fan of Boston, or maybe they just felt like if you, they go to Boston, they won't come back to Connecticut. Um, he goes, Spanky, you're now in the top tier of contenders for the Ring of Honor world title. He says Aries is currently scheduled to defend the title on that next show in the Boston area, and Spanky is looking good to challenge on that night, except there's one thing that needs to happen. Gary says James Gibson is another top contender and is wrestling later tonight, and in order to get that title shot, Gibson will have to lose later tonight. Um, Spanky kind of just seems physically, you see his physical manners, and he's kind of torn on how he should feel about this. But Matt, I thought the weird thing about this, I realize it's trying to build that kind of frenemy tension with Spanky and Gibson, and also add some stakes for the Gibson-Rocky Romero match later tonight. But I thought, think how weird this segment is in kayfabe terms, in that Gary Michael Capetta randomly comes up to the rafter match, and is like, I got some big news from you, I got some big news for you, Spanky. You could have a title shot, if another guy loses tonight, like, like I had to interrupt everything to tell you this. Like, that's yeah. such a weird announcement. Now, I have to say, 
I'm just thinking about this from like a like a logic standpoint. So Spanky returns. He beats Alex Shelley, right? Yeah. Then he beats CM Punk, right? Yeah. Then he loses to um, James, James Gibson. Gibson. Then he beats Jimmy Jacobs. Uh, then there was a trios tournament. Then he beats Jack Evans. So Gibson hadn't lost yet, but he did have a bunch fewer matches, and he didn't beat Alex Shelley and CM Punk. I don't know. I don't know really if it makes sense that Gibson would be ahead of Spanky here. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I guess I you mean, could say yeah. if he beats Romero, that that's the more impressive win on this night in the sense because Romero was recently a tag champ. At this point, Jack Evans never held the title. But yeah, like you said, though, I mean, beating CM Punk and Alex yeah. Shelley, you know, that's pretty big wins to start off your run here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> you should, yeah, it's anyway. over, overthinking it, but, but exactly. just, just, but that's what we do, right? But again, we wouldn't be overthinking it if they didn't call attention to it by having Gary Michael Capetto like randomly come out and be like, I got big news. Yeah. You'll get a title shot if somebody loses tonight, which right. is a weird thing to hype. But anyway, at this point, uh, Roderick Strong walks to the ring. The crowd chants, you tapped out for a recent WWE extra work he did because, yeah, like we said with the rave thing, a lot of the guys were tapping out from Ring of Honor and WWE at this point. Uh, Strong grabs the mic to say that he got paid to tap out. Uh, Strong then tells Spanky that the only way he'll get to Austin Aries is through Generation Next. Spanky snatches the mic back and he starts screaming. He calls Strong a disrespectful little prick, but Jack Evans attacks Spanky from behind. Strong and Evans beat him down. Evans tells Spanky that he got knocked the fuck out. So, uh, yeah, you know, we're going to see a lot of this now, and, and this time Mark Nolte keeps talking about during the show the idea of wrestlers like Austin Aries having, like, set-up men, you know, guys. Policemen. Oh, yeah, policemen is the term he kept saying over and over again. Why not just yeah, use the yeah. word enforcer? That makes more sense. It, exactly. You know, there might have been even a famous wrestler that had that nickname that played that role as much as anybody. Right. But, uh, yeah, the idea that, you know, in a stable there's like a second guy that, you know, you always have to beat him if you want to get to the top guy. And obviously that's what they're setting up strong to be in this situation to be the kind of – you have to be – you want to get to Aries, you're going to have to beat strong. I guess, um, I, guess I guess strong can't be the enforcer because Austin Aries is double A or as he called him, A double. <laughs> we'll get to another uh, great Mark Nolte pronunciation or way of saying things in a little bit too actually. Um Next matchup was the winner. This is a stipulation match. Winner gets the Special K name tag team match. Special K of Azrael and Dixie defeated Special K of Deranged and Izzy, who were scored to the ring by Cheech, Cloudy, and Lacey. In 12 minutes, 40 seconds, when Azrael pinned Deranged after he hit an electric chair driver off the second rope. And this is the – I said there was four matches at the start that all kind of went against my expectations in some way. This was the last of those, and I would say this one does because – it's got way less flying than you think. It's, way, it's like, you know, Special K was really known and mostly positioned as just the crazy spot monkeys who are always in multi-man matches or they were getting like the shit beat out of them in tag matches where they were just getting nearly squashed or, or outright squashed. And this match, you know, they get a decent amount of time and they kind of work a, a somewhat more reserved, like straight up wrestling match. Like they follow the tag rules closely to the point where like late in the match, where you think it's going to do the usual thing that like almost all tags of this era do, which they break down and everyone starts running in and out of the ring. Deranged at one point like runs in when he's not the legal man, like helps out his partner and then like drags, you know, his partner back to his corner so he can t- get tagged in just so he can be the legal man for the finish. Like it's an attention of detail you probably wouldn't expect from a, a special K match at this point, but it has it. They even start the match with like 
some mat work and some sub- submission attempts. Uh, Dixie does like a neat little leg trip and does like a legit good amateur like wrestling style back ride that even impresses, you can tell, impresses Mark Nolte on commentary. We see stuff like a bow and arrow, a surfboard, and like are they executed as well as say Brian Danielson would do them? Uh, probably not, but it was still neat again for someone that's been watching every show to see these guys kind of do things you don't see from them at least in Ring of Honor. And that that that, that 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 neckbreaker code red combo was at least as well as Brian Danielson would do it. Oh yeah, and that is definitely the highlight of this match. I would say is that neckbreaker. They do they, they do a combination deranged and Izzy uh, code red like neckbreaker on the same guy at the same time, which was really cool. They also do like a cool double brainbuster where they both hold the guy up in the air, but one like sits out and the other guy does like the traditional drop. I don't know if it quite makes sense of how that makes the move hurt more, but it, it was. A neat little difference. But overall, yeah, like this is not an incredible match, but I would call it like a decent like three, three and a quarter star, like fun little traditional tag match. They do have a bit of bigger action at the end, especially again, you get that big finish with the uh, the electric chair driver off the second turnbuckle. And yeah, this is this is kind of a special K match, I think, for people that don't like special K in the sense that, you know, it, it's kind of hot tag, heels cheat behind the ref's back, respect the legal man, you know, build up with a little bit of mat work to start. It, it's it's a surprisingly traditional little tag match, which in a weird way, part of me was a little disappointed because you would think the Battle of Special K would be like their craziest match ever, but it was actually kind of their uh, their most sensible match ever in Ring of Honor. And they do have another match coming up in a few shows that where they go more in the direction you'd expect. But this is definitely the um, let's prove we're real wrestlers match. Like everything that you said was clearly a very conscious decision on their part. Like let's let's subvert everybody's expectations. Let's do all this traditional wrestling stuff. Let's you know make blind tags behind the ref's back and you know have like have our um, our seconds like choke somebody over the ropes and stuff and just pepper in a few of our big spots. Um, and the, I feel like you said like not everything was so smooth. But they did a lot of quick tags. They did a lot of grounded grounded wrestling character work. I really like Derange's spot early, where he like he 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 runs like he runs the ropes like he's going to do a big like intense move, and then he just locks on a chin lock on Dixie, and the you know the crowd <laughs> the crowd goes along with it. They chant "Holy shit" for that. You know, like that's um, you know that's fun, and I think you know I'd agree with your basic star rating three three and a quarter stars, but like. That's good. Like that's that's a that's a darn good match, yeah. and um, and you know they do a good job. Um, you know they do their big spots at the end. But I, you know, like um, Izzy springboards in, but Azriel catches him for the electric chair. You know they do the uh, the neckbreaker code red thing. Izzy hits the blue thunder driver on Dixie, then then does a dive to the outside onto Dixie. Um, Derange has a double spot stomp onto Azriel's chest, and then he goes for the top rope Rana, but Azriel catches him and hits that top rope electric chair. I thought the finish was great. Um, like a really, really good and well done finish. You know, not every spot in the match was perfectly done, but that was. And the crowd loved that finish. They chant yeah. like holy shit, and then there was I thought a surprisingly big round of applause after the finish too. Like when they won, yeah, uh, I was surprised at like how into. The, the the special K winning as they were. Yeah, I mean the, the the spots that they don't do all the time were the ones that maybe didn't look as good, but like their big spots they do a lot. They they hit them all pretty perfectly, and usually they don't. Uh, you know, honestly. Um, so I think this was a pretty admirable effort, all in all. 
Yeah, again, because it was it was them outside of their comfort zone. Like, how many times have these guys gotten like nearly thirteen minutes to wrestle a match where they're not just expected to either do a spot every ten seconds or like get squashed by someone to make them look good? You know, this was a pretty rare might might be one of the only examples of this up to this point in Ring of Honor for these guys. So to see them excel this well at it is, is really uh yeah really cool. Um. After the match, the crowd starts chanting take it off at Izzy in the ring to uh, take off a shirt, his special K shirts, and realize – again, this shows you, I guess, how smart th- this crowd and how – they knew the stip going in. So they knew immediately, like, you can't wear that shirt anymore. You don't have the rights to that name anymore. And then you see Cheech on the outside. He's like, okay, I'll take off my shirt. And you can see fans like, no, we're not talking to you. But <laughs> Cheech being the goofball, he's like, takes off his shirt. And then Izzy takes off his and kind of, like, mocks the crowd. So – they lose the rights to wear those very special shirts, Matt. Those very special K shirts. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that brings us to the next match, the biggest match up to this point on the show. Homicide, scored to the ring by Julius Smokes, although that will quickly change. Defeated Roderick Strong, scored to, to the ring by Jack Evans, although that will quickly change. Via pinfall, 18 minutes, 27 seconds after he hits a second big lariat in a row. Um, before the match, Strong gets on the mic and he says something to Homicide I can't quite understand. The audio quality in this building was not the greatest. Crowd chants, shut the fuck up. Strong goes on to say that tonight is about him versus Homicide, not Generation X versus the Rottweilers. Strong wants to send both Jack Evans and Julius Smokes to the back. Evans goes to the back and actually so does Smokes then. Um... So this is kind of continuing something we've seen Gabe book, especially with Generation Next sometimes, which is the idea of in the big matches, they don't want help. It's kind of like they want to prove, you know, that they're really on that level. We saw kind of Aries do that last year, I think. And then at this point, Homicide then briefly jumps into the crowd to confront a fan, but he immediately like leaves chuckling. But although you do see him later in the in the match kind of keep looking and acknowledging the fan, Gabe says there's no excuse for what Homicide for Homicide to do what he just did. Gabe for like the eleven hundredth time says, you know, Homicide's almost provoking a riot again. Well the riot thing plays a little worse in twenty twenty one than it did even then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh Later during the match, Homicide gets into it with the fan, but they never cut to a camera showing it. So, Matt, before I get your opinions on the match, I, I'm just going to say I kept wondering, well, what the hell was Homicide kept acknowledging this fan? And I was kind of disappointed because it was – I thought it would be like some fan said something horrible to him. It was surprisingly innocuous. This is from a, a PW Insider Live report from James Brown. I, I wish it was that James Brown. but <laughs> It was. Isn't. It was. Godfather of Soul, huge fan of uh, mid, mid-aughts indie wrestling. But – um. This per- James Brown wrote, Homicide defeated Roderick Strong with a short-range lariat. This was a very good match. Early on, my friend decided to be a ball buster towards Homicide, stating, April 3rd is not only WrestleMania, but opening day where Boston will beat the Yankees in New York City. Homicide decided to jump the rail and start a ruckus, which was enjoyable. So this entire thing that Homicide keeps going back to this fan was because a fan shouted before the match, that uh, the, the the Red Sox were going to beat the Yankees. And, Julius uh, Smokes had a Patriots jersey on the week before. Just saying, yeah, um, exactly. Um, but, but yeah, um, but James that, Brown James Brown didn't die until two thousand and six. So I think <laughs> he was he was filling a live report for the show. Remember, wasn't he at Super Brawl once? So I think oh, he's, yeah, he's a wrestling oh, yeah. he's a wrestling fan. He was at the show, <laughs> submitted a live report to PW Insider. That's what happened. I would have loved that at the end. He was just like, good God or have mercy was like the last thing he said in the report. But no. Um, Papa's so got a brand my- new DVD. <laughs> a brand new bag of DVDs. Oh, man, I ruined it. <laughs> a brown new ba- brown bag sale of DVDs. Um, 
so mad. Papa's got a brand new bag of DVDs. It was a buy three, get one free sale. Matt, this is the kind of humor that makes us the number 14 podcast <laughs> in all of Denmark. Exactly. Uh, because, it, because like, especially for the non-English speakers there, they love it. <laughs> exactly. Um, the people transcribing it for thousands of fans that are going to get a real chuckle. But, um, Matt, so 2005 was obviously, this was a year we'll get to quotes in later episodes where Gabe really had his mind to start poking, pushing Roderick Strong a bit more. And clearly you would say this is one of like the early signs getting 18 minutes against Homicide. So big opportunity. How do you think uh, he did? And how was the match? Um, I would say, you know, if you if you see this this match on paper, you'd probably expect it to be better than it was. Um, not that it was bad. I mean, you know, I, I it was good. I feel like it probably would have been better actually if Jack Evans and Julia Smokes were there doing some character work on the outside. But you know, they tried to go the serious route. You know, they 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 do the um, you know, they they have a pretty clean start. And then Homicide does the first heel move where he bites Strong's hand. Remember, this is technically two heels against each other. So that always sort of gets the crowd in a little bit of a weird place. But, you know, they spent a long time reversing arm bars. Nolte gets to, you know, be in his glory talking about policemen. At least in this – it makes more sense for Roderick Strong than it does with Jimmy Rave, which was the other time he mentioned it before this. So I'll give him that. (laughs) Um you know, there's there's stuff where you really highlight ROH's really random rules because Homicide hits Roderick with a chair on the outside. And it's like, remember remember that was happening a lot in 2004 and they were like, we're going to get strict with the rules now. And now – but, you know, if Homicide decides to do it in the middle of a match, like they're obviously not going to stop the match, right? So, yeah. um, so what are you going to do, I guess? Um, but Strong does at least one impressive power move where he gets Homicide up in a power slam position runs his back against the post and then just chucks him back first against the guardrail and you know that allows homicide to you know to take over you know on on homicide's back um gabe posits that there's a curse not allowing generation next to defeat the rottweilers and and that curse would allow homicide to win against aries as well because remember generation next lost to the rottweilers at the trios tournament uh the week before um yeah um, homicide like works on is working on Roderick's neck, and Nolte calls a move that he does a leg Nelson stretch, which he has to have made that up, right? Like that that can't that can't be an actual. Somebody tell me is there is there a leg Nelson stretch? I don't know. Um, yeah, as far as like just like the moves and stuff they do, they're fine. Just never really feels like it gets to this level of intensity that you'd want. Um, one point strong avoids the lariat and catches him with a half Nelson backbreaker and that's the first big backbreaker of the match gets two count on that um homicide hits a, a runner from the top rope a pile driver they do a few reversals uh, roger gets another backbreaker and locks on the boston crab pre-stronghold and i was going to ask you is this the first time he did that hold i don't remember if, if we've, we've seen him do that in roh before the uh i'm boston not sure crab. but this is the first time it really stood out to me like oh oh yeah strong did used to do the backbreaker a lot so if if this wasn't the first time it has to be an early time because i had that same impression watching this was like like it stood out to me which i mean i i guarantee you in a year or two it's not going to stand out to me when roderick strong does a back a, like a, a boston, boston crab. crab yeah well yeah. that was well it, it became his finisher at least one of them um at least you know by not too much later in the year than this so you know that that helps but um 
you know, at a certain point, Homicide hits the uh, the top rope. H Crusher hits a lariat, and Strong kicks out. And that that finish actually got me. I, I mean, that that near fall. I actually thought Strong was not going to kick out, but then Homicide follows it up immediately with another lariat, and Strong lariat lands on his neck, and Homicide gets the three. I really did feel that you know whatever you say about this match, it it does feel like it's like almost the um, the quintessential back to basics match. You know, they they just had a match, kind of. There wasn't any, yeah. anything fancy about it. And, you know, there was a story, which was strong. He was weakening Homicide for the title match that was coming up, which is a reasonable story to tell, and it had the right finish. I, I just, I don't know. It wasn't bad at all. It was good, but, like, I, I guess I was hoping for a little better. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I agree completely. I would say this was, a, as a match, would be, like, again, like, as good as the special. See, this is a match where expectations kind of teaches you about expectations because i would give this match probably like the same star rating if i had to as the special k tag we just watched and we were really praising the special k match for being like a three and a quarter star match and yet i'm gonna say this is a disappointment but that's because the difference is when you see homicide and roderick strong get 18 minutes your expectations are more than like a three and a quarter star match but where the special k thing you know for better or worse you you maybe are not just like oh i'm sure they're gonna just hit a giant home run here and yeah this was a a decent match but uh, the way i would say it, i think you kind of said it in a different way like this match is never more than the sum of its parts in, in like i felt like like homicide was doing all the stuff he would normally do and roderick strong was doing all the stuff that he normally did but when he, ever he, either guy was on offense it felt like anyone in the world could have been the person taking their offense like they weren't really interacting in a weird way or like you were saying like there's not really like an emotional connection like like it was almost like eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich but instead of eating it all together you're eating like a bite of bread and then a spoonful of peanut butter and then a spoonful of jelly like that's my that's my favorite trevor food analogy i've ever heard exactly it was it's like technically it's the same food but it's not coming together like it still feels different in not a pleasurable way like i'm trying that i'm trying that tomorrow <laughs> uh, I, I've tried, you ever try that sometimes where you eat like food and you remember you realize like you forgot to put something on the food so you just quickly like grab like a spoonful of hot sauce and like somehow you think like the hot sauce is going to catch up to the food that you've half eaten and like oh this will taste the same but really <laughs> I don't it's th- not a good experience i don't think i've done I, you mean like eat like like take a spoonful of hot sauce like separately from the food like don't put it on the food but just eat the hot sauce to see <laughs> so, so like, you're like you're like seasoning the food after the fact is that what you're trying to say no i don't think i've done that actually uh, I, I i i'm not that smart matt but uh um, <laughs> actually yeah uh, yeah that was just a joke matt uh, don't take that seriously uh yeah i've never done that um maybe i'm the weird but, one here <laughs> I, I agree though that um the most impressive spot in the match was Roderick Strong chucking Homicide into the bar- barricade also just because i don't think you normally that's the one thing that felt like their personas were kind of interacting. Like you don't usually see homicide get tossed around like that in ring of honor. And, you know, to see strong do that to him, it was kind of like, Oh, that's like an interesting interaction that kind of plays into both of their personas and what they can kind of do or don't usually have done to them. But everything else was just like, Oh, it's strong doing his offense, homicide doing his, it's all mechanically perfectly well executed. I did like that, you know, the end where homicide, like you said, where, Homicide hits him with the first lariat, and he gives him that lariat to kick out. That's like his big, you know, I'm going to let him survive one. And then he just murders him with a second, and Strong kind of goes dead weight when he rolls him over. I thought that was a cool finish. But 
yeah, it just for 18 minutes, it, you, you, for guys of this talent, you want more. And clearly you look at it, you know, it was the last match before intermission. It got a ton of time. Clearly this was meant to be one of those kind of matches that bumped up strong stock. And, uh, this, this quite frankly, I don't think did do that. Um, one, so the nulty pronunciation thing I thought was funny. You know, this is coming from the guy that once called CM Punk CM. Nulty during a commentary calls not- homicide. He goes, you know, that's homicide. The notorious 187. Thought, <laughs> is Mark Nulty the only guy that says 187 and not 187? Like, you know that rap lyric of Gabe, you know, 187 on an undercover cop. You know how it is. Like, just, but, uh, that, 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 that hipping hopping lyric? <laughs> um gabe also uh predicted you know on commentary he says roderick strong's going to be the breakout star of 2005 which i don't know if it's quite he'll be that level but it definitely will be a a, a more true gay prediction than when he said on a recent show that vordell walker is the best prospect in all of wrestling i think by the uh, end of the year i think you can make a pretty decent case that he was the breakout star of 2005 at least the second half of the year since uh since you know gibson probably was for the first half yeah and and I guess going to that point, you know, this, he'll have matches against James Gibson and against, you know, Brian Danielson that will accomplish, I think, what this match was trying to accomplish for him, but just for whatever reason didn't get there. A couple of really good ones against CM Punk, too. Yeah, he, 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 he will have a good year this year. It's just this match for whatever reason, just for some reason, you know, not a bad match, just. For whatever reason, does not click, and it's. So I think it, it's telling with Homicide, where whenever he has a match where it's like just decent like this, it seems really weird. Because I remember one time we watched him wrestle uh, Christopher Daniels, and we were like, "Oh, this is only like decent." Like and it was like a shock to us, and I think that's actually a sign that you're a pretty damn good wrestler when it's like almost like like just a complete left field surprise when a match you have against another good wrestler is like not at least around like, you know, three and a qu- three quarter, four stars, like right. great pretty much. And this was a rare one where he had a good opponent and they didn't get there for some reason. But um, we go backstage as it's intermission. Gary Michael Capetta tells us that we'll find out if Spanky will be the number one contender later tonight, depending on if James Gibson wins his match, which I guess if Gary wanted to frame it another way, we could also find out if James Gibson becomes number one contender tonight. Um, Gary is then joined by Dixie and Azriel. Dixie says it's a great feeling to win, but Special K doesn't re- represent who the, they are now. He says they're ashamed of all the partying they did, and as far as they're concerned, the Special K name is dead. And Gary at the point is like, you've heard it. The Special K name does not exist anymore, and that's the end of the segment. So this is something that I don't know if this is the only time this has happened in Ring of Honor, but it kind of reminds me of, like, say, the uh, the homicide punk uh, – Samoa Joe match we saw last year where it's like the winner gets to call themselves the icon of Ring of Honor and that was almost immediately never mentioned <laughs> like this is a match where the winner gets to be Special K and the winners are immediately like we don't want to be Special K the, the <laughs> name is dead and uh and we'll get to a segment later which makes it even like kind of more ridiculous but uh Matt the only thing I'll say about this why I think I feel bad for Azrael and Dixie at this point is we've talked about this in the past too which is the idea of you can't take away a character from a wrestler, even if the character is getting stale and not give them a new character. And I feel with like Azrael and Dixie between like getting rid of the theme music they had, which by the way, even on this show, they still did not have entrance music and they don't really have characters at this point, but then they also don't have like the fun special K character. And, and 
I guess since this is the last show with Special K, like I'll say, I, I want to know your opinion. I think Special K at this point, it wasn't a bad move to get rid of it. I do think it kind of ran its course. Like, but at the same time, it was a fun gimmick, and you can't just take away a gimmick. Like now, these guys just feel like kind of sticks in the mud that are just stuck in the undercard. Like they don't really have a hook to them now. Yeah, well, because I mean, you can tell uh, he wants to push Azrael. You can tell Gabe wants to push Azrael. Yeah, I mean. I mean, Lacey's Angels, I thought was a fine thing to do for the heels. I mean, I, I, you know, I thought that was, you know, equivalent to what Special K had been at least recently. You know, never got to the level that Special K was earlier, but you know, not you know, it was fine. But yeah, with they really had a lack of creativity when it came to Dixie and Azrael. I guess the idea was they wanted to just do a Jay Lethal thing, because really, I mean, you have to admit they didn't really give Jay Lethal a character. Um, you know, he was Samoa Joe's protege, but it's not like he had like some big personality and, no. you know, really never did in his, uh, you know, in his initial run in ROH, um, really he started, I mean, he really found a personality in TNA, right? Yeah. With the black machismo. And then even like in the way in the post game ring of honor, where he started to be Jay lethal started to be a main eventer. I remember people being like a revelation, like, Oh wait, Jay lethal can just cut a really good promo as Jay lethal because like we've talked about, you know, recent shows, we were kind of joking at how hammy Jay Lethal's delivery can be at some point. I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure he would not be offended if we said he was not – he was bad at promos at this point in his career. Like I don't think I don't think he would mind that at all because yeah. clearly he's good at them now, but he wasn't good always. And, and I don't think it's crazy to say also that for uh, – there's been a bunch of really good in-ring wrestlers where they do end up getting the total package – and I'm not talking Lex Luger here, but I'm just saying, like, in terms of charisma, like, that's that's the last thing they get, I feel like. Some. Like, Rocky Romero, those first shows in Ring of Honor, he did one of those promos with Reyes, and he looked nervous and kind of stiff and robotic. And now he's a very charismatic guy, you know. The Briscoes. The yeah. Uh, great example. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they never really give Azrael or Dixie a chance to get that because they just – like, even like even throughout this entire feud, Azrael and Dixie are just like – yeah, sticks in the mud. Party poopers. They don't, they won't come out to music. They look sad all the time. It's like, what are we getting behind here? Um, yeah, they, they they didn't really do right by them, honestly. But also, you know, like they have to hold up their end too, and we'll see how that ha- how that goes. You know, as we continue yeah, that'll to watch, be, that'll be interesting to see. Um, Four corner survival match came up next. This was the first match back from intermission. Allison Danger defeated Cindy Rogers, Daisy Hayes, and Lacey in eight minutes forty eight seconds when she pinned Rogers after hitting an STO. Um, so yeah, we were starting to see more women's matches in Ring of Honor at this point. We we're starting to see a lot of just these four ways, but even uh, this is one of those matches, and I've said this for a couple of these women's matches where. They count as progress for Ring of Honor. I mean, women, four women getting nearly nine minutes counts as progress at this point. Uh, Gabe's commentary, Nalty starts the commentary by saying, I'm proud of you, Gabe, for not, for referring to the women as athletes. And Gabe then gives replies to Mark with a surprisingly cutting remark where he's like, you're, he's just saying like, your opinions mean nothing to me. Not that you're, <laughs> not that any praise from you means anything to me. That's what exactly. Says. Like, I was like, whoa, because Gabe <laughs> and Nalty were not ever playing like the bickering commentary partners or the face heel. Like, it was never like that. And, did, did, um, that did not seem like acting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Gabe then admits, I've made sexist comments on previous shows. And then Gabe, less than a minute later, makes a comment on how great the camera shot is of Lacey's ass. He also uh, never apologizes for making those sexist comments. He just says that he made them. 
<laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. you're right. Um, uh, Gabe also later talks about Alice in Danger. Recently, got bruised up on a show, and he says, you know, Alice in Danger is too pretty to have a bruised up face. But in terms of the match, I mean, it was perfectly average. I, it, it was a four way. Some of the offense looked a little rough, but you know, overall, it, it went without any kind of. I would say without any major hitch, except there was one spot where Allison Danger goes to whip Daisy Hayes into the ropes. I think she was supposed to land on the second rope, and instead she just lands and like smashes her face into the first one. And you can hear the crowd like, oh. But other than that, n- not like a crazy botch anywhere. Um, I felt like Lacey and Cindy Rogers got to show more here in this match than anyone else. I thought Rogers looked pretty good. Lacey looked pretty good. Was this Rogers' uh, first match in ROH? I don't remember. Yeah, yes, it is. It, yeah. it absolutely is. Uh, Daisy Hayes, I thought she was the highlight in recent Ring of Honor women's matches that she's been in. She doesn't really get to do a ton here. She gets to do her big flying drop kick. So she's not the highlight here more just because she's not, I think, as heavily featured. Allison Danger probably looked like the weakest. She didn't get to do much, but she did get to win the match and do the finish. We saw like, you know, some basing mat work, some a rolling cradle, some decent offense. And I would say, if nothing else, the women's wrestling in Ring of Honor at this point had gotten to the point where I don't think you could say it hurt the show. Like, is it going to be like a highlight of the show? No, but like for people that were saying at this point, you can't have women's matches on Ring of Honor. Like, it'll totally bring down the show. Like, this match was perfectly fine. The crowd enjoyed it fine. Although, I will note a live report said that um, the crowd chanted camel toe at Lacey, which I did not pick up listening, watching the match back. But, uh, yeah, that's shitty. But uh, apart from that, you know, it, it, it felt like the crowd took it, like, enjoyed it as a match, I would say. Sometimes in crowds, you know, the people near you do a chant, and it sounds like it's a big chant, but then you realize it wasn't. So hopefully yeah. it was just a couple of assholes and not, like, a large thing chanting that at Lacey, but... Who knows? Um, it definitely was the least sexist commentary yet, but still very sexist. So I, um, I, I, I wrote at some point like, "Come on, Prasak, like let's let's get let's get through this 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 awkward period because, you know, if you know, it feels like we're not going to have to deal with that much more of this, which is a nice feeling to know that like the sexist commentary in ROH is probably going to come to an end pretty soon." Um, in terms of our watching, I, I actually it really makes me happy um, to see that because it's exhausting, honestly. Um, you know that this is the best that they got. You know, at a certain point, um, you know, like when when Gabe said that he made sexist comments in the past, he actually says like, "Well, now that they've impressed him, he's going to be less sexist." You know, and not like I'm going to be less sexist because it's wrong, but just like, well, you know what they've they've shown themselves to be good enough that I can treat them with respect. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like that's I think even more sexist, um, honestly. But but you're right. I think Lacey looked the best, honestly, and she's the dominant personality in the match. Um, you know, her personality is kind of like the thing that you pay most attention to. Danger, yeah, she really kind of didn't stay in it too much, um, despite winning the match. Um, at one point, Hayes and Danger like they're fighting in the corner. They don't, it doesn't look great. But Hayes pushes Danger away and hits an, it's another top rope drop kick to her. And Nolte goes, and that's why Hayes is considered a better athlete than Danger. And I'm thinking, is that a nice thing to say? I don't know. Is that, is that, is that, okay? Well, whatever. But I guess it is true, but still. 
Well, it's also hard because, like, I when when Nolte says stuff like this, like, I don't ever feel like he has like the credibility. Like, I don't believe right. he's been watching a lot of Alice in Danger and Daisy Hayes matches on the Indies. You know, like exactly. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like when he when he did that, he's the he's the least the least objectionable one in the women, commentator in these women's matches at this yeah, point. Yeah, but like like when he does that rant about Lacey back at Midnight Express reunion, and he's like, the only thing she knows about wrestling is that she can't do it, and like nobody's like, hey. You know, been rust. She's been wrestling for a while now. Like, um, oh, whatever. Yeah. Um, but um, there is one other spot besides the one that you mentioned where there is some some awkwardness. Like, it's where Lacey and Danger are arguing with each other, and like they're waiting for Rogers to come and like break it up and attack one of them. But Rogers takes too long, so you oh, see like yeah. so you see like Lacey like turning around, like being like, "Hey, what's happening?" Like that spot's a little bit awkward. But um, but other than that. It's pretty much um, what you said. There is some sort of fight in the outside between Hayes and Danger, and off camera something happens that pops the crowd bigger than any other spot in the match. <laughs> but but we don't see it, and I have no idea what it was. Um, so you know that's always a great thing. But um, but yeah, I'd say this was on the scale of ROH women's matches. It wasn't the best they've had so far, but it was almost the best they've had so far. You know, it was just maybe like one or maybe like the second or third best women's match so far in ROH, um, which isn't saying much. Um, but, you know, not not too great, but not not bad. Yeah, I would agree. It, it didn't take anything away from the show. Yeah. I mean, it, it has progress in the sense that they got more time than Delirious, than Jack Evans, than, you know, the right. Ring Crew Express. No, that's that, a good that, point. You know, it's a good point. Yeah. So... Next up was the Ring of Honor tag title match. BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff de- successfully defended their titles by defeating Colt Cabana and Nigel McGuinness in 13 minutes, 59 seconds, when Whitmer pinned Cabana after he hit the wrist clutch exploder. Uh, this was Dan Moff's last match in Ring of Honor, at least for the Gabe Sapolsky era, and we will we can go into that after we talk about the match, I guess, because that's his own thing, but... uh Matt, this was, uh, you know, we've, we've enjoyed Cabana and Nigel as a team in a match before. What'd you think about this? You know, they, uh, you know, big match on the uh, second half of the card for the tag titles. Yeah, I don't know what it was. I mean, maybe I do, but like, I didn't, I wasn't crazy about this. I, I, I don't, I just didn't find it very entertaining, especially by Nigel and Colt standards, you know, two wrestlers that I, you know, like a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, I'm not really sure that I ever loved Moff and Whitmer together as a team. Um, I definitely think that they've been worse since they've won the titles. Like, there are few matches that they've had. I haven't been into them. I'm not really sure what they're going for. You know, I'm not sure if they're supposed to be heels or what. Like, you know, they they jump Nigel and Colt before the bell, um, you know, just like they did with uh, Jacobs and Delirious uh, at the anniversary show. I just, you know, I, I'm just not sure. They, they, they're much less animated than they were in the cor- in the match with Cornette and Heenan, um, but they're also more serious. You know, they're not stooging and stuff like that. You know what I would say just quickly is I think it goes back to what we just said about uh, Special K, which is they're another team where like they've lost a gimmick and they have no gimmick to replace it. Like even though I think we both felt like that the uh, – the Alice in Danger stuff and the feuding tag partner stuff went on a little too long. It's like ever since they've lost that, they really don't have anything to replace it. They don't really have characters now. And I don't think they have chemistry with each other. I mean, yeah. it's not going to be an issue, obviously, you know, going forward. But um, <laughs> but like I, I just don't think they work that well together. I don't think they're like an exciting team. Um, 
you know, and this is the second time where the ROH has had a tag team champion, like second time in a row where it's like, uh, this is kind of disappointing what they are. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But, um, you know, Whitmer, I think, is more interesting when he's doing big moves and taking big moves, not when he's like slowly, methodically getting the heat, which is what he did for a lot of this. Um, you know, they, they do, you know, they do their heel stuff. They draw Nigel off the apron and Cabana goes to tag him and he's not there. Um, Eventually, he does double. He, you know, they work on Cabana for a while, but he, do, you know, he does a moonsault press on Martha Whitmer and gets the hot tag to Nigel. And you know, Nigel does some fun stuff. Um, he um, he does a, a bunch of shoulder blocks to Moff, but he doesn't go down. So Moff, Moff shoulder blocks him, and he does his second ever rebound lariat, but this time from the front. So basically, it is the classic move that he becomes famous for. Um, and actually, it is the best spot of the match at the, but to that point. Um, so I enjoyed that. Um, you know, they, they do a few more things. Whitmer gets a brain buster on Nigel. Cabana breaks it up. Um, Cabana with a, a missile drop kick. Um, Whitmer goes for a wrist clutch onto, but, but Cabana blocks it and turns it into a roll up. And Whitmer blocks the roll up and sits on top of him. But Moff is distracting the ref and that allows Nigel to come in and reverse Cabana into a roll up, which that's a whole convoluted sequence, but I'd say it was actually one of the more entertaining parts of the match. Um, Cabana goes for the twirly bird again. Whitmer escapes, hits Cabana in the back of the neck and gets the wrist clutch exploder and gets the win. And the wrist clutch exploder gets a dangerous call, which um, always feels very random, but Gabe does love saying it for the wrist clutch exploder. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the final few minutes were okay, um, but I just thought the match was kind of boring. I, I like this a bit better than you, but not a ton. Like, again, just trying to zero in to give some idea of like how I ranking this match like i would probably give it like just a flat three stars which again when it's nigel mcginnis and colt cabana in a 14 minute match i think this goes back to the uh the strong homicide match you kind of want more than just uh that was kind of decent that was a little bit better than average um yeah i agree with a lot of what you said though i i i if I could describe this match, I would – with one word, I would just say mid-tempo. I felt like the whole match was kind of like in this – in second gear and it never got into first, but it never got into third. It just kind of putted along at the same pace all the way through and there were some cool – a couple neat spots. It was neat to see another early instance, like you said, of the uh, rebound lariat. I liked when – um Colt was getting whipped into the uh, the corner at one point. Nigel put his body over, draped it over the corner so that Colt would hit his body and not the turnbuckle, like kind of a padding. And then later on, Moff and Whitmer try and repeat the spot, but Nigel just like kicks the guy that's laying on the turnbuckle. I thought that was a, a funny, fun little spot. But yeah, there's just something missing. It, it, they follow, you know, they work over Colt's injured neck, which they say he got, Gabe says he got hurt from the, uh, the delirious match and it, it but yeah it the impression i always got watching moff and whitmer was there's few teams or acts in wrestling i could ever think of where i can tell they're working really hard and they're getting so like their 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 entertainment value never matches the the effort because i never feel like they're these guys are mailing it in it always feels like they're giving like a four plus star effort like they're always trying to have a great match and they're working really hard but yet so often i would put the matches their quality wise is what we're seeing here which is just like uh that was maybe a little better than average but yet it always feels like they're working really hard but like maybe it goes to what you said maybe they just don't have chemistry with each other maybe uh, maybe it's the way their their roles I, i don't know but um 
a couple other little quick notes. This is where we start to get sold on on commentary that Steve Carino might not be showing up for the main event. Gabe says that this match was originally supposed to be the main event, which I'll say, sure it was Gabe, but Carino still hasn't showed up. Gabe says he sent a phone message at seven 30. Carino did to say that he's on the way, but this, but this city really isn't that far away from where, uh, Cornet, I mean, Carino, it was. And, um, so Gabe kind of already kind of starting to shit on Carino a bit. um, and then on commentary, Nalty does one of the things, the thing I hate most about Nalty's commentary, which is working against clear storyline points Gabe is trying to put over. Because late in the match, you know, Colt is the isolated guy. He eventually makes the hot tag. And then later on, pretty shortly after Nigel makes the hot tag, like Colt wants to be tagged back in again. And Gabe is trying to say something like, maybe Colt shouldn't have done that. And you can tell Gabe is trying to plant the seeds for dissension, like the idea of, like the old Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Royal Rumble 94 thing where, you know, like maybe the injured guy that just got his ass kicked shouldn't be insisting on coming back into the match. And Nalty Amelia is just like, nope, I think it was a smart move. You know, Nigel just took some off. And it's like even I as the home viewer know exactly the story Gabe is trying to sell. And Nolte always is like, nope, no, I, I disagree, Gabe. Um, I think this might actually be different. And you can you can just tell that Gabe is not – into that but um yeah just a, i thought a, a okay match but uh this would be dan moff's last ring of honor match obviously he had a recent little run in ring of honor but this would be his last match for a long time in ring of honor and one of his not his last but one of his last matches for three years in wrestling and what happened they do acknowledge it uh gabe does in the final segment of the show, they add a little segment where they say Dan Moff's got into a car accident and he has to retire from wrestling, which is a really intense way to play it. Yes. And, um, instead we will tell you what really happened. Obviously, um, this is a sensitive subject so much like the Rob Feinstein thing. Excuse us if we're trying to be a little careful here. It's also we're subject o- to a lot of like online chatter without any super le- super official confirmation of anything, right? So Exactly. And because of that, you know, I'm not going to go to any of the message board comments I looked up today or, or anything like that. I'm going to go just through two observer quotes and an official quote from Homicide and leave it at that and maybe tell you what happened after that. But – I'll go first to one quote from The Observer, which was, it's unclear exactly what the story is with Dan Moff, but he's gone from pro wrestling over a real-life dispute with Homicide. Homicide told independent promoters it's a him-or-me proposition and says he's the bigger star, and apparently whatever it is Moff did, Homicide claimed it was something to do with his personal life, was enough that he convinced people he was the one to keep. I have no clue whether this is an illegit or an angle since the two started out together. Well, first off, I'll just say, Dave, this was legit. I mean, Dan Moff, like when this breaks, it broke at some point between this show and the next show. Um, Dan Moff, at that point after the story breaks, does not wrestle, according to Cage Match, for over three years. So clearly, it, I would say it was legit. We'll go to another Observer quote from uh, the next issue after, I believe. Um, Dave would then write, the story on Moff is that Homicide is pissed beyond belief at him for something having to do with their respective personal lives. The exact thing has been kept quiet, but Homicide, 
who runs in a dangerous crowd, has vowed to hurt Moth if he sees him. Moth being away from wrestling is something he's doing for his own personal safety, because if he shows his face, he's in legit danger. It isn't so much the homicide pulled rank that promoters have to pick and choose, although he did, as much as it's for Moth's personal safety, he knew it wouldn't be good even if a promoter didn't pick and choose. You know and what? You know so, what? That just proves is that Dan Moss shouldn't have broken up his association with Allison Danger, since you know he could match Danger for Danger. Dan- All right, maybe I shouldn't joke about this. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no t- time plus tragedy equals, and it's it's been a long time. So exactly, and yeah. so there was there was a ton I remember of online chat about what this meant. People were crying out. Homicide did give an, an official on the record statement to a website at the time that was kind of we've mentioned in the past. They covered kind of they were a bit of a seedy site, but they did have some wrestlers that would talk to them called the Declaration of Independence website, no longer around. DOI, um, I'm sure many of you remember it. If you're listening yes. to this show, you probably know about it. So Homicide did give an official quote to them, and I'll read it off here. This is the last time you will hear or see me mention that jabroni's name again. Dan Moth is done in the wrestling business. Finished. Moth blackballed himself. I did not blackball Moth. Promoters had to pick me or him, and all the promoters picked me because of what Moth did. There's only one side of the story, and Moth fucked up, and that is why he is done, and no one is using him. Moth fucked with my family and fucked with my personal life. Moth is a... you know, the, the, he's, I won't say the word. He, he's the thing that, um, Moff, Homicide accuses Moff of being what people accused, uh, Rob Feinstein of being. We'll put it that way. He goes, I hope, Homicide says, I hope fans can understand this. This shit is personal. This is my life. Moff screwed Moff and blackballed himself because of what he did. No promoter want to use him because of what he did. Moff is done with wrestling. I want everyone to know that I hate Dan Moff and I don't respect him. He's a piece of shit. This is my personal life and the last time I will ever mention this guy's name again. This is done just like Moff's career. I want fans to know the whole story, but this is very personal and that's all I can say. I know fans want to hear that whole interview, but it's better off not being up there because it's real life. Moff is done. What year was that that he, that he gave that, that interview? I believe this was just like weeks or days even after the story broke, so 2005. Gotcha. And so, yeah, um, obviously there was rumors, you know, heavy accusations. All I can say is we can say, uh, you know, on the record on a site that doesn't – on a podcast that doesn't want to get sued, that wants to keep being able to serve the country of Denmark. Um, On the record, Moff did not wrestle for three years after this. He did come back for uh, JAPW, Jersey All-Pro. He started working in the Northeast. He started – you know, and he's worked, you know, on and off. Ever since then, and in fact, in the last, I would say, five years, looking at Cage Match, Moff has started to work not – before then, there was a time period where he started to work on shows with Homicide again. And then I would say about five years ago, he has now worked for a handful of matches where he has been on both on the opposite ends of the ring as Homicide and teamed with him. So as heavy as these insinuations are – they apparently came to some kind of understanding because they have wrestled against each other and together, which is a big difference when you consider that what we're talking about right now is homicide is reports basically saying that Dan Moff's like physical health is in danger if he shows up anywhere homicide is. So, so time plus tragedy also equals comity. C O M I T Y. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, it's it just a, a heavy story, and it was really mysterious at the time because, you know, Dan Moff was one half of the tag champs, and all of a sudden, not only is he done with Ring of Honor, he's done – like, he was – at this point, the Jersey All-Pro Wrestling, like, their their world champ, 
they just vacate the title. He doesn't even drop it. He's just gone from all of wrestling. And in fact, ironically, Homicide is the guy that wins the, the, uh, the, t- the match for the vacant title. So that, that was also a little interesting thing. But, um, yeah. So just um, Dan Moff, um, Matt, do we have any final thoughts on Dan Moff except, um, I thought he was a good, decent wrestler. You know, he had some good moments. I thought he was a little overrated on his promos. They were not as good as I remembered them to be. He kind of overdid the the quiet, loud trick where you do a little quiet, then you scream, and then you go back quiet. But, you know, he was a good mid-card hand to have around, I would say. And I don't know if you could say it's a tragedy. If, 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 if what Homicide accused him of is anywhere close to being true, I don't know if you could say it's a tragedy or sad that he left, but it definitely... You know, it's it's not a great way to leave wrestling, I guess. No, it's Although not a great way to it's, come back. It's not a great way to leave, and also the basic like, yeah, he got into a car crash and he's gone. Like that's like, like whoa, like what a rough way to be written out. That's like Poochie style, almost. But I was more about violent. to say Dan Moff died on the way back to his home planet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was kind of like that, but um, no, yeah, I mean, I think Moff when his promos were kept short were pretty decent when he would like get too much time they were not you know that promo at good at bitter friends stiffer enemies on loki is probably the worst promo in roh history um so but like, he also had some good ones like it's you know it's not yeah. like it was consistent um anytime where he had to spend too much time on a bus was not great either but like you know like he had some real highlights like, you know that that street fight with the second city saints was fantastic like really really yeah. great um, I really liked his his one match with Samoa Joe for the title. I thought that was a, a very good match. I um, you know I thought that some you know in some of like the the, the bigger you know like the 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 um, bigger uh, embassy matches he was good. Um, you know I thought the match I liked the match where they won the tag team titles. Moff and Whitmer. I know you didn't really love it that much, but I thought it was good. You know Moff was a pretty good wrestler and. Um, yeah. He wasn't the best guy in ROH. I mean, there was lots of fantastic wrestlers in ROH, but he was a, a solid mid-card hand, like you said. And yeah. um, and his character improved, and I think, you know, you could see him improving too. So, you know, I think if they had found the right spot for him, he could have been really good. I don't think they ever totally did, though. Yeah, I do think there could have been – I don't think he ever would have topped out as, like, close to a main eventer, but I do think, yeah, there was something left on the table with him. Like like you said, with the right role, there, he could have been maybe a bit more than he was, you know, maybe an upper mid-carder, maybe, like, more than just this guy in a push tag team that wasn't that over as a tag team, but – um so yeah, that, that's, that, that's, that's Dan Moff's Ring of Honor career, at least for what we'll be covering. Uh, next up was James Gibson defeats Rocky Romero with Homicide and Julius Smokes in his corner via submission in 16 minutes, 55 seconds, using the front guillotine choke. Um, this, uh, uh, this ca- there continues to be something about James Gibson where he makes the small things really interesting to me, like the really basic stuff. I'll say off the bat, I thought to some degree this was another match that was good, but not great and kind of maybe underachieved a little bit, depending on how big a fans you are of these two guys. I would put it as like a three and a half star match. I, I enjoy, I thought it was probably the best match of the night so far, but it still wasn't what I would call a great match or a blow away match. And like a lot of matches on the, on the show, it also didn't really have 
a story told in the match or really like a really heated feud component. But I, I did think it was just a lot of really good, ec- well-executed technical wrestling. The match did kind of build. It started off pretty slow, but it kept, but I actually, again, I, w- I was surprised how engaged I was by the basic slow early stuff. And I thought they, they built the match up well. And, yeah, I just continue to be really impressed by James Gibson's little things. Like his body language, I think you watch his body language. It's really good. He's always, there's a lot of wrestlers where you watch them and you feel like they're just going move to move, like mechanically. Like you can almost tell that they're thinking in their head as they do one bump, like the bump I've got to do in 20 seconds. Where Gibson always feels like he's really in the moment, like he's reacting to what's happening to him in the moment. And his selling continues to be really good. Like there's one move, I forget the exact move that Romero hits him with. And Gibson does this facial expression where he looks like he's just about to cry. Like he looks like he stepped on a Lego times 20. And it's just, it's almost too comical, but it's just the perfect level of not being too comical. It's just so good. And he's full of little moments like that, that I really like. And he's really good even on just like basic things like vertical suplexes or repeated body slaps. He has a really snappy, good execution Romero, I thought, was pretty good, too. I thought in some ways he had a bit of an off night in the sense of some of his big jumping knees and kicks didn't quite look the greatest. Some really – there was one jumping knee that looked absolutely brutal and great. Some didn't. He does kind of botch. I don't know if it's his fault or Gibson. I kind of felt like it was his. Uh, Rope walk, rope walk Rana, where um, it looks like he didn't get his legs around – Gibson's head, but Gibson has to take the bump anyway or at least decided to take the bump anyway. Um, and finally, I felt like the, uh, the end of the match where, uh, Romero is on in control and then Gibson just counters out of nowhere a move with a neck breaker and then immediately slaps on the guillotine choke for the win. I felt like that was a little abrupt, but it does seem like in a couple of these Gibson matches, they're kind of trying to sell the idea that like he can get the win with the guillotine out of anywhere. But I still felt like in the flow of this match, the way it was building, it felt kind of like a bit anticlimactic. And especially because there's a move I posted on Twitter a few days ago, what happens a minute earlier, which was to me the coolest move of the whole show where Romero has Gibson in a standing hammerlock. Gibson leg trips him, like he kind of hooks his leg with his leg and they, they trip the floor. It's hard to describe. And then they both roll through into a bridging pin while their legs are still tied. And it gets like this big near fall, like halfway through the move, you can tell the crowd being like, Oh shit, this is cool. And I felt like that would have been the perfect finish instead of kind of the anticlimactic, um, guillotine finish. But overall, I thought this was a, uh, this, this was a good match. Again, not a, a match you have to go out of your way to see, but the best match on the show so far. Yeah, I would agree with almost all of that. Um, it was a, um, yeah, I would say it was, it was the best match on the show so far. I thought, I thought it was very good, but I, I, I really do agree that it peaked a little bit early. I actually think it even peaked before the spot that you said, like the, the spot that you mentioned, like brought them back up again. But there was a sequence like earlier in the match where, you know, they were doing like um, like they, they did a double midair cross body and they tr- got up and they traded forearms and they bounced off the ropes. And, you know, they ra- and Romero hits the hits a f- cuts off a forearm with a knee, goes for a knee strike, but then give, gets and pops up and does like a fighting spirit clothesline. And they collapse. And, you know, the Romero does like a Rana takedown into an arm scissors with Gibson breaks out of it with a power bomb, and Romero does like a sunset flip power bomb. Like I thought, like that whole sequence, the crowd was very up for it, and then they sort of got a little bit quiet after that until that spot that you mentioned um, with the with the hammerlock reversal and the roll up. 
But I thought, so I do think the match peaked a little bit early, and that's really the only nit that I would pick. You know, I mean, I, I really did enjoy the, um, the early, um, mat work and stuff, you know, the Gibson slaps, uh, and with Romero and get, got some oohs and ahs. Um, I enjoyed that. Um, a couple of, um, a couple of other notes. So Mark Nolte makes a Dick Vitale reference, which you don't hear too often, saying he doesn't <laughs> want to be the guy with 14 guys in his top five before he compliments Romero as a breakout star of 2005. And I think we can both agree that at least in ROH, Romero was not a breakout star in 2005. I think that no. one that one is pretty clear. There's also a moment where Smokes called Gibson a cracker. And, you know, I was like, I mean, given the Confederate flags on his trunks, I, I, I'm not sure if that was such an inappropriate statement. But, <laughs> um, but you know, everything else Gibson did was great. Um, I agree with you about him. Like, he does, he just does the little things so well. His body language, like you mentioned, like the the technique, like the way he like floats over into pinning combinations and different things like that. He's just so smooth. I mean, this is basically a preview. Like, he's his run is just going to get better and better. He really was a marvel during this whole era and you know sometimes you actually watch this and you wonder like where did these guys get so good because it's not like he had a chance to get so great in wcw or wwf you know like it's like yeah yeah i was gonna say he does the little things like like a veteran of like a 25 year veteran but he wasn't that old right so i i feel the same way as you exactly i guess just on like house shows and stuff i don't know i mean you know the indies and other things before this i mean I, I guess I actually haven't gone back and like looked at the history of his career before he went to WCW and the WWF. Did he spend much time in like Japan or Mexico or anything like that? Do you know? I'm not sure, and quite frankly, it's been so long. I've been re- I haven't even revis- revisited like the Young Dragon stuff he did in WCW. Like I remember people loving him, but I wonder was like was he even close to that then? Like like this kind of smooth because man i mean yeah uh, that's another thing i should probably revisit if i if matt if we had infinite hours and never died i would definitely do that yeah because i mean if you look at his cage match it goes basically from he's he's uh in a couple indies in 90 he's he has a match in 97 i guess i'm sure he had other matches that just weren't like recorded and then you go skip all the way to 99 and he's basically in wcw at this point and in, in, in a few indies and you know, it's and he's already pretty good. So it's you know, there's really not a lot of readily available history. Um, it looks like he spent a lot of time in like HWA after WCW folded. Um, you know, maybe that's where he got a lot of you know, a lot of um, ring time. But it's just interesting because he's so good. He, yeah. He's such a he's such a good wrestler, and you know, it's just I I mean I guess part of it's just talent. You know. Yeah, some people just get it yeah. easier. You know, yeah. they they just pick up things or or get details that others don't. I guess he he did he did have a run in New Japan in uh, in two thousand and four, um, which I'm sure helped a lot. But it was not like he's not like he spent so much time there. No. Um, couple other things quick from this match. Uh, did you notice, Matt, that Julius Smokes kept motioning like multiple times for someone to come out from the back to the point that at one point Gabe mentions on a commentary and no one ever comes out. Like there are multiple times he like waves to the curtain like, come on out, like someone better come out here and no one does. I wonder if that's just a bit like he's so desperate that he wants people to come out and help him, but there's no one to come out and help. Yeah. And the other thing I liked was there's a point where um, 
Romero takes a tope, tope from uh, Gibson er, fairly early in the match, and Smokes like immediately is like spraying Romero's back with water, like wearing with a spray bottle. And it was just how it was so he was so quick to do it. I, it just made me laugh. Like the the hilarity of like taking a move that like dramatic, and then like seconds later having like water sprayed on you like that. That's such a weird idea for me. Like for, so for some reason that just tickled me in some weird way. I don't know why that 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 was so amusing to me. But it, it probably, was. It probably tickled Romero. A little bit too. <laughs> I don't even like. I don't even like getting water sprayed on me when I'm doing nothing, Matt. That's why I haven't had a shower in 18 years. But um, let alone after. Like, but, but but you do. Uh, but you do put salt in your mouth after you've already swallowed the food. That's yeah, a, that, that is that is a thing you do. <laughs> An hour after I walk in the rain, I put soap on my dry skin. I'm like, this will catch up. This stuff will come eventually. Um, so after the match, the uh, Rottweilers, they have a tantrum on the outside. They grab chairs. Gibson grabs a chair and stays in the ring holding it. He kind of stares them down from in the ring. And they eventually, the Rottweilers eventually leave, at which point Gary Michael Capetta makes his way back out to the ring. Gibson gets a surprisingly, I would say, re- like big and sustained round of applause from the fans at this point. They're really into him. Uh, Capetta says, as a result of that win, Gibson has won a Ring of Honor world title shot at their next Ring of Honor show in Massachusetts. Gibson says, this is a dream come true in Ring of Honor, and their fans have given him a second chance. At this point, Roderick Strong and Jack Evans run in to beat down Gibson. The crowd immediately chants for Spanky. So again, this crowd really knew what the storylines were at this point. Uh, although I guess they kind of showed you their connection earlier with that other Gary promo. But Spanky quickly comes out to make the save. When things have settled down, Spanky grabs the mic and he congratulates Jamie Noble and no one knows this for like a couple seconds. And then you hear some fan in the crowd shout James Gibson. And you can see Spanky like cringe and the crowd laugh when he realizes <laughs> everyone kind of realizes, Oh yeah, he said the wrong name of his supposed great friend, James Gibson. So Spanky makes, you know, corrects himself, gets a nice little crowd reaction. Spanky says he hopes Gibson wins the title. And when he does, he wants to be the first guy to challenge him for it. They shake hands. So, yeah, there, another one of these kind of frenemy storylines where Spanky keeps kind of getting shown up by Gibson, but he's still being a good guy at this point. He's still, you know, respectful, being like, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hoping you do well, buddy. But so next up, we go to backstage. Special K is goofing off and Lacey is pissed, but not that. I guess I can't call him Special K anymore. Oh, thank God they're going to be Lacey's angel soon. So anyway, the formerly known Special K is goofing off. Lacey is pissed, but not that pissed, because she's got an idea for a new merchandising brand, Lacey's Angels. Someone in the, in the group says, like, Charlie's Angels? And they then then do the old Charlie's Angels pose. And so, Matt, I just wrote my notes. So to sum up, after the match where two teams fought over the rights to the Special K name, the winner said, we don't want it, and the loser said, whatever, we got a new, better idea anyway. Yeah, and so, honestly, honestly, both reactions are completely rational. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it still is one of those Ring of Honor gimmicks where, like, the the, the stipulation gets reward, awarded, and then instantly it is, like, the meaning of it is negated. Like, turns out no one wants <laughs> Wanted or needed this name that they were fighting over. ROH, but, ROH is a lot more like WWE than they let on. <laughs> um, before the main event, Punk CM Punk makes his way to the ring to a big crowd reaction for his entrance. And Punk then has some explaining to do. He gets on the mic and he tells us that his supposed good friend, Steve Carino, isn't here tonight. Punk says he's disappointed because tonight he's up against the pure champ and Samoa Joe. Colt Cabana has already wrestled twice tonight and has a bad neck. A Steel sitting at home in Chicago, and so Punk needs a partner. He says for anybody, somebody, anybody to be his tag partner tonight, 
out comes Spanky, who grabs the mic and says, he's sure everyone is sick of seeing, hearing his voice right now, but tonight the winner of this match gets a shot at the tag titles, and Spanky is here in Ring of Honor for titles. They shake hands once, and then in a funny little move, Spanky like pulls away and then d- rears back and does like the Macho Man to Hogan Mega Powers handshake, where they really like o- overset like the exact same handshake, and I thought that was cute. And then we have a team and an impromptu, well, not an impromptu. I mean, this was going. It, so the original main event for the show was supposed to be Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe versus CM Punk and Steve Carino. Winners get a tag title shot on, a, on the next show. Instead, we get Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe defeating CM Punk and Spanky in 25 minutes, 59 seconds, when Lethal pins CM Punk after a Stevie Richards superkick and Dragon Suplex. Yes, you heard that right. A Stevie Richards superkick, not someone doing a Stevie Richards-esque superkick. Stevie Richards come out. He hits the superkick. So we'll get to that, I guess, after we talk about the match. I think the first thing we should do, Matt... Is we'll talk about Creo for a second, then you can talk about the match, I'll talk about the match, and then we can talk about Richardson's that happens at the end. So, this definitely felt like, I mean, having rewatched the show, that so this was going to be the show where they had Carino and Punk break up because they teased the breakup on the last show, but did the kind of thing where like they almost break up and then they smoothed it over. They'd obviously have been building up for, for months now, basically ever since Carino came back, the idea of Carino and Punk being these kind of guys that are, are friends, and they're teaming together, but also they kind of are bad-mouthing each other immediately when each guy leaves the room and they are kind of really annoyed by each other. And so for some reason, the show, Steve Crino just isn't on the show. And so I tried to do a bunch of research and was having a hard time because, like I said before, The Observer for some reason does not cover this show. And in fact, the only quote I could find from The Observer about this was was um Dave writing – the, like the week after the show happened, as expected, stemming from his showing up late for last week's show and then walking out, Steve Carino is on the outs with Ring of Honor for now. But except Dave never reported on him walking out to begin with, the best I can tell. But of course, so at least we know that. We know Carino showed up and we know he walked out. We do also know that on the, on the Ring of Honor Newswire after the show on March 17th, uh, they wrote on the Newswire, Steve Carino and Ring of Honor have parted ways Ring of Honor would like to thank Mr. Creel for his invaluable contributions throughout the years. Well, they almost said through the years, Matt. But almost. anyway, uh, um, then the PW Torch wrote, regarding why Steve Creel was taken off the Ring of Honor card after being advertised for the main event, Sapolsky said, no comment. So I couldn't find anywhere any uh, that mentioned this. So I finally desperately a few days ago on Twitter wrote, can anyone, does anyone have any information? And former guest of the show, good guy, Joe supposed to gave us the, inc- the incredible recommendation of why don't you just ask Steve Carino on Twitter, which I thought, well, I'll probably annoy him. I've never had an interaction with Steve Carino in my life. I'll do it. Matt, within minutes, I got a reply. So I will read that off now. Steve Carino tweeted, I was mad at Gabe and probably being unprofessional. Mostly mad at Gabe. And Brian Regal, his uh, personal ring announcer at this point, who was reading off the long ring introductions, replied to Steve saying, that was a long-ass drive, and we were only at the building for two minutes. So I don't know, you know, Gabe, on we mentioned earlier on the show, Gabe mentioned during commentary, you know, it's 7.30 and Creole hasn't showed up yet. We do know his students were there for the second match. So I assume his students then showed up earlier. I don't know. Uh, whatever happened, whether... Gay, you know, Carino showed up late and gave got, and got angry, or the two got mad, or whatever. All we know from the stories is Carino did show up for the show, he, and they had some kind of argument, I guess. 
and they left within two minutes and then the card got changed and Credo did not show up until for months and months. He does come back during the Gabe era, but not for months. So he comes back in 2005. Yeah. So, and this is the end. Like you were talking to me, I think on the last show and between shows online, like there's a lot of like aborted angles in ring of honor at this time. And this is like, this is the end. They spent months kind of building up this Carino punk feud and, it it just kind of like you know like another Crino feud the uh, the old Crino's group versus Christopher Daniels prophecy feud it kind of ends with Crino leaving before it even really gets rolling and yeah I don't know if it's it's the hugest loss I, I don't know how good it would have been well remember been remember punks that. punks not going to be around for much longer anyway and he's yeah, also and, and he's in that embassy feud so but either way. That's not the match we got. We got a different kind of match. So, Matt, um, what do you think about this? Obviously, a lot of big names, and I believe at least not in wrestling in general, but in Ring of Honor, I think one of the big selling points of this match was it's the first time Punk and uh, Joe were in the same ring together since their uh, Joe versus Punk 3. That was probably three or four months earlier. So what would you think about the match? Yeah, and it's also Jay Lethal's first main event. Um yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, uh, I unless you count that scramble uh, cage thing from the year before, I yeah. guess. But um, I I like this a lot. I thought it was. I, I would compare this match to like peanut butter and jelly, but like if you had it the normal way, where you made a sandwich out of it, <laughs> put it all together, everything working together. Um, this now, was like you made a sandwich with those jars that have them, the peanut butter and jelly striped together, so you don't have to do the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, sure. Um, but <laughs> um, no, I. Um, I, I thought Jay Lethal looked great in this match. I really, really did. I thought, you know, he really turned it on. I also enjoyed at the beginning of the match where um, Gabe asked Mark Nolte if he had any leads on who attacked Jay Lethal the week before, and Mark got all indignant and was like, "What do I look like? A character on Law and Order? Like they are they are breaking apart at the seams, just like you would not believe." Um, One show left. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gabe also says that that because Punk chased away the embassy, they all. Um, they all fled back to Ghana, and Nana has them all holed up in his palace, and he has the Ghana army stationed outside the palace just in case CM Punk shows up. It got me wondering. I wonder if that's what the uh, like all of the fencing and security at the U.S. Capitol is for now, too, just in case CM Punk shows up and tries to, <laughs> tries to get in there. Um, well, he's a fan of pipe bombs, Matt. Oh, <laughs> jeez. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I did not see that coming. Um, but, you know... T- Good job. Um, the um, no, I, I thought like like Punk and Lethal had this wrestling sequence at the beginning of the match where they like did this all these fast paced reversals and like Punk went for a shining wizard and Lethal caught it and turned it into a jackknife pin, and I thought it was like really really good. Like just like it went on for a while. It was fast paced. It was crisp. I was very impressed, not just with Lethal there, but actually with Punk because that's not the sort of thing you see Punk doing very often, especially back then. And I thought they both held up really well. Like, that was just very impressive. Like, it was almost something you'd expect, like, I don't know, like, Loki and Brian Danielson to have done a few years earlier. Like, just not something you'd necessarily expect from Punk and Lethal, and I thought they did a good job. Um, I also thought that, um, that, that Spanky was, was a lot of fun here. Uh, at the beginning of the match, when he tags in, Against Lethal, the crowd starts chanting for Joe, so Spanky gets them to chant for Lethal instead to discourage him from tagging Joe. I thought that was a cute spot. Um, you know, I, I th- you know, I thought this is just a lot of good stuff. Like um, Punk and Joe 
face off and the crowd goes nuts and Punk goes right back to the headlocks. And, like, that's a fun callback. So Joe comes back and wails at him with face slaps, but misses um, a spinning slap. So Punk immediately gets another headlock takedown and this time gets him. Like, they're just, they're very fun to watch against each other. Um, Like, there's another spot where Spanky and Punk take down Joe and celebrate, but Joe pops up behind them and just knocks them both down with the shoulder block. Um, They also have a moment on commentary where they make very clear that this was. this was recorded weeks later because they talk about the best of American Super Juniors tournament <laughs> and Gabe being Gabe goes, I don't see what can go wrong in this tournament. This tournament's going to be awesome. And so like <laughs> – yeah, I know cl- that too. Yeah, clearly this was recorded after that, um, which yeah. we'll have plenty of time to talk about. Oh man, will that next show be interesting. Um, Yo, yeah. But um, – you know, Lethal has another good exchange with Spanky. Spanky hits a great drop kick, and Lethal comes back with this like interesting like whipping backbreaker thingy that he does. Um, Lethal hits a really high angle back suplex on Spanky that causes Gabe to almost like gasp, um, like just like way on the back of his head. Um, you know, uh, Joe and Lethal briefly get to work over Spanky for a while, but really most of the match is Spanky and Punk getting the heat on Lethal. They, they work over Lethal's ribs. Um, Punk even does an abdominal stretch. And even though they're not like being total heels, they do this spot where like the heel abdominal sp- stretch spot where like behind the ref's back, they clasp hands with, when the abdominal stretch is in. And, you know, Gabe is very upset by that. Um, way more upset than he is whenever uh, Moff and Whitmer attack somebody before the bell for some reason. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so they get the heat on Lethal for a while. Um, Eventually, um, Lethal throws Spanky off in a, in a slice bread attempt. He drop kicks Punk on the apron, and he slowly, slowly, while selling his ribs, gets over and tags in Joe. And Joe, of course, is on fire over the head, belly to belly on Punk. Power slam into an arm breaker on Spanky. Um, power bomb into the STF on Spanky, and pulls him back into the center of the ring, and pull and then pulls Spanky back so far in the STF that Spanky has to bite Joe in the hand to get it released. Um, you know, Lethal comes back, diving headbutt, Punk breaks that up, um, diving from outside the ring, and a really, I thought it was a really good, like, pinfall save there, because Lethal's about to pin Spanky after the headbutt, and Punk is on the floor, and he dives from the floor onto the apron, through the bottom rope, and onto Lethal, like, across the ring to break it up, like a really good last-second pin save. Um, at that moment... Nolte says that Lethal should make the tag because his thing that he does is always criticizing whatever the wrestler is doing. Um, that's just <laughs> Nolte's whole thing. Yeah. Uh, um, Spanky does a cool move. He does a swinging DDT on Lethal while drop kicking Joe. Then he tags in Punk. Um, they actually they actually do a really cool double team themselves because like Spanky does a flatliner on Lethal while Punk does an insigiri on him simultaneously, and the crowd pops big for him kicking out of that. Um, Eventually, though, Punk and Spanky overwhelm Lethal, and Punk escapes a, a dragon suplex, hits a bridge in German suplex. Joe breaks that up, and Joe and Punk are back in the center trading forearms. Um, and Joe ducks a Punk clothesline and immediately does a topai onto Spanky. Um, then Punk and Lethal are in the ring. Punk goes for the Pepsi plunge, and then Stevie Richards appears. On the apron, he, he comes on the apron, and Gabe won't say his name. He does one of those. He doesn't work here. Like, he's Lex Luger um, and, uh, at Nitro. Like, yeah. like one of those for Stevie Richards. 
Um, so Punk goes to hit him. He ducks. He hits Punk with the Stevie kick. The announcers are very confused. 16 years later, I am very confused. Um, <laughs> Matt, so, I did research and I'm still kind of confused. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Lethal is back in the ring. He uh, he goes for the dragon. Um, Punk fights it, but eventually Lethal hits it and pins him. Uh, Spanky tries to save, but Joe holds him back. Um, I like this a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought Lethal looked great, but that finish, come on. <laughs> like That was very unsatisfying. Like, Stevie Richards, I mean, I, I like Stevie Richards, but what? Um, so I like this match less than you, like not a little. I, I, I thought this was the match of the show, but I would by match of the show, I would say like three and a half stars, like – I go. I, I, I'd go four, four and a quarter. Yeah. See, I, I, I like this. I thought this was another match. Which, like, if if I could rename the show, I would not be back to basics. It would be wrestlers I really like having perfectly like middle of the road matches. That's a lot more unwieldy of and long of a show name, and maybe not as enticing. But, um, I thought everyone here did work really well. Like, the, although Joe actually picked, didn't wrestle that much in this match. It was, like you said, it was more Jay Lethal and versus, uh, Spanky and Punk. I liked it. The, the problem I felt like was one, I, I, I you know, I, I haven't loved every part of the Spanky Punk, I mean, the, uh, Carino Punk, uh, storyline, but I felt like without, with Spanky in there, there wasn't a lot of like, kind of storyline emotional juice to this match it was just guys wrestling but wrestling very well but at the same time the one time it felt special was when punk and joe were in the ring together which they didn't do a ton together but they did have that one long sequence and i agree that felt special and really cool i love that punk went back to the headlocks and joe kept avoiding them and finally near the end he got like one really decent length like hard headlock in there it was kind of it was kind of the model they used for joe and loki where they would like you know people want to see it again so they they just tease it and like they they they, they just they they just give you just enough that you that you want more obviously like cm punk had um a really good career after this and joe had some real big highlights in tna after this and even some in ring of honor obviously but one of my, I, I felt this way before, but watching this, that, that sequence especially, I, I had this huge regret. Like, I really am bummed that Punk and Joe did not wrestle in the same company for like another 10 years because I really feel like they should have been one of those eternal rivalries, like, I don't know, Masao and Quad or like Austin Rock, or even though theirs wasn't that long either, but like. Yeah, well, they, know, they never wrestled in the same company ever again. Y- yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I would have loved that they had been together for like a decade and it's one of those things where like every couple years they meet up again you just know and whenever they do it feels special because i really do think the magic these guys had at least in ring of honor it really could have felt special like i feel like these guys are smart enough they could have kept finding new wrinkles to it and instead you know this is kind of you know they're gonna have another match together in ring of honor later in punk's run here but really it's kind of the end for them already and that's sad when you think about how much these guys had to give still, I feel like, and how great they were together. But um, I agree, Jay Lethal looked really good. I really thought it was interesting the way Spanky has worked Samoa Joe in this match and in the trios tournament match where they faced off because, like, most guys that wrestle Joe, you know, they sell for him big. You know, they let Joe kick their ass because Joe's got this big ass-kicking guy. But Spanky wrestles Joe 
like he's Yokozuna. Like Spanky tries to lift Joe for a suplex and he can't. You know, he does shoulder blocks and just bounces off of Joe until he does a double one with Punk. Like, I really think it's interesting that Spanky has decided, like, I'm going to be the guy that wrestles Joe. Like, he's like the completely immovable object where other guys will be like, oh, I'll lift up Joe. I'll, you know, you know, hit him real hard and make him bounce across the ring. And, and, and Spanky's the guy who's like going to wrestle him like he's Ray wrestling the great Kali, which it is entertaining. It's an interesting way choice that he's making there. And so I thought that was neat. And it's a kind of a shame. I feel like those two, I don't think ever really had a singles match. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the match, uh, but I just, for some reason, I'll tell you what it was, Matt. Um, I felt like this match needed, this show needed one match where they kind of like, went kind of crazy and just went over the top and did those few ma- that oh this show needed one match that did the thing that people that would call down ring of honor in this era what the, what they would call it down for which is the idea of the match that kind of got overindulged and did like like a final five minutes of just crazy near falls and big moves i felt like the show needed just one match like that because the show was in a way kind of reserved and i felt like they were starting to get really hot like they were really starting to peak at a new level and then Stevie Richards comes out and does the super kick, and then that's the end of the match. And, and and in a way, maybe that made my review of the match a little harsher because it left kind of a sour taste in my mouth where I'm not a person against interference or even fuck finishes at the end of matches. But I felt like this was a time where the match was just like reaching maybe a level where I would have liked it as much as you. And then Stevie Richards comes out and it's a super kick. Yeah, probably and, that probably lead, like the, the it's a finish probably makes it more in the four star range. But I thought it was very much for me headed toward that four and a quarter range. And uh, yeah, I, I just didn't quite like it as much. Although there, again, cool moments. There's like a, a backbreaker where Lethal just kind of grabs Spanky from behind and basically like kind of pulls him onto his knees in a backbreaker as he himself falls onto his back. But it's not a lung blower. I thought that was cool. Uh, and like you said, there was that scary moment where Spanky takes like a backdrop suplex from Jay Lethal, and it looks like he just shifted his weight at the very last minute to not break his neck, which scary, but also knowing that he was okay, cool. Um. Yeah, so yeah, maybe the one match we've had a serious disagreement on this show, even then it's not that much of a disagreement, still, in my opinion, the best match of the show. Um, so let's get to what the hell, why was Stevie Richards on the show? I tried to investigate, Matt. I don't know how many answers I got. So first off, let's mention, I knew so, it stuck in my memory so badly that when you mentioned on the last show, alluded to this at the end of the last show, I did not know what this was. And you were like, oh, you'll remember. And then I did. But, like, I didn't even remember this. But then when I started thinking about and researching it, this was a big deal at the time. Because for those who don't remember, Stevie Richards was still employed in WWE at this point. He wasn't doing much. But this was a WWE contracted wrestler appearing in the main event of a Ring of Honor show, which at the time didn't happen. It was pretty crazy. Um, On top of that... This was supposed to be a long, like a, a longer term thing, at least, because according to going to the Ring of Honor Newswire at the time, March 14th, they wrote on their website, no one knows why Stevie Richards went after CM Punk last Saturday. The only thing that Richards told ROH officials is that he will be back. We aren't sure why, especially since Richards is under WWE contract. We will find out when Richards returns to Ring of Honor later this, later this week, right here in the Newswire. And then later on, um, 
PW Insider wrote, WWE Steven Richards is now questionable to appear on the uh, April 2nd Ring of Honor debut in Ashbury Park, New Jersey, as it's the day before WrestleMania 21, and WWE likes to have all the talent in town the entire week at the pay-per-view. He's still booked for April 16th in Boston and and, um, um, May 7th in Manhattan in Ring of Honor's New York City Manhattan debut. So Matt – it, I mean, my memory is horrible, but if I remember correctly, confirm this for me, Stevie Richards doesn't show up again in Ring of Honor in this era, right? At least not on DVD, he doesn't. So that's the first mystery, which is – which I'll get to in a second. Then one more quote – well, actually, I'll get to that. I'll get to it right now, actually. So I couldn't find anything really about it, so I listened to our friends at the Unhonorable Mention podcast, Jeff Schwartz and uh, Steve, Shane Hagedorn. They have already covered Back to Basics, so if you want another like three hours talking about this show or two hours or whatever it was, check that out. And they did have um, something to say near the end. Shane Hagedorn, of course, worked for Ring of Honor. He was one of the people filming the show. He His recollection was – and it didn't – it sounded like it was just his memories, but that – Stevie um, actually worked with the Ring of Honor students at some time, either shortly before or after this appearance. And he he did remember what PW Insider reported, which is that he was supposed supposedly going to be booked on like two or three upcoming shows at the very least. And then he didn't. And uh, I believe Hagedorn's best memory was that for some reason when the – the word Ring of Honor's, you know, a pseudo announcement that he was going to be working future shows. WWE didn't like that, and then pulled that. That the word got out, and they pulled him from all their shows. Which, in a weird, sounds weird because, like, why wouldn't you be allowed to announce it if they're letting you do it? But either way, I can go to um, a quote from the PW Torch. Where uh, Gabe on this match says Samoa Joe, Jay Lethal, Spanky, and CM Punk deserve all the credit in the world with that main event. They basically saw how great the crowd was and that we wanted to build the, the market, so they were determined to deliver with a great main event. It was a prime example of the wrestlers feeding off the fans. The Woodbridge, fan, Woodbridge fans wanted to get lost in the show and not sit there and be smart marky about everything. Gabe's still going after the fans or try to get themselves over. And that just drives the wrestlers to work harder in the ring. It is just great to see that when everything comes together like that. So if I remember correctly, Gabe has another quote. Let me just see if I can just find it here. Let me find it. All right. This is the quote for Gabe on Stevie Richards. The torch wrote, WWE contracted wrestler Stevie Richards made his Ring of Honor debut on Saturday's Ring of Honor live event in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Ring of Honor promoter Gabe Sapolsky isn't revealing how that deal came about. Quote, I don't really want to get into details of the hows and whys as it's not right to make any kind of de- uh, kind of a deal and then go running your mouth about it, he tells the torch. But I do want to thank the WWE office for letting Stevie do some dates for us. It is a class thing for WWE to do. Vince McMahon said, I think it was on the ECW DVD, that he wants to help out the entire business. And this is an example of WWE doing that. Matt, I'm not blaming Gabe. For, I, I told you this earlier in private. I'm not blaming Gabe for um, praising WWE, especially when they do you a favor and let a guy come on the show. I do have to say the idea that this that Stevie Richards appearing on a Ring of Honor show and then not being allowed to work there ever again <laughs> is proof that Vince McMahon wants all of wrestling to succeed. When I think we have a pretty clear track record of the opposite being true. Um, 
Well, let me put it this way. I believe Vince McMahon wants all wrestling to succeed. I think Vince McMahon also wants to own all wrestling. I think he wants yes. all wrestling to succeed as long as it's all his. That's right. <laughs> and also, but, and also, don't call it wrestling. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, this almost feels like one of those things where Vince McMahon probably didn't even know about it. <laughs> like exactly. Yeah. Like I mean, I don't know. That's true. But like, this none of this answers my question, which is why? Like, why did they decide? Like, okay, we're gonna. Get Stevie Richards in for a couple of dates and immediately have him be involved in our main event with CM Punk, who already has supposedly two other feuds going on. Um, it's like, why? Like, and I like Stevie Richards, but like, this almost feels like a little bit of Gabe being like, "Well, I like ECW. Let's do more things that reference that." Like, I mean, I mean, I'm sure Gabe can answer the question, but do you feel like there's much of an upside, even if everything worked out perfectly? Of bringing in Stevie Richards and putting him in any sort of even short term program with a main eventer, I felt the like I remember the night of. Even though I didn't remember this when you mentioned it last time, I remember the night of, like or the week of. The message boards were a buzz because, but I think it was less that Stevie Richards is in Ring of Honor and more a WWE contracted wrestler is working for Ring of Honor, and I think actually like that buzz would have worn off and then we would have been left with the idea of do people really want to see like Stevie Richards versus CM Punk or Stevie Richards versus Samoa Joe and I don't think they would have I mean not, I, mean, they, I don't think they would have been disinterested but, but I don't think those would have been like heavy DVD sellers not any more than like those guys versus people that they were already feuding with in ROH anyway like um but yeah, but this is just another example. I mean, so many things in early 2005 just did not pan out. You got the Foley Joe thing. Now you got Carino. Now you got Stevie Richards. Even something like the Vordell Walker push, like, right? Like, like that was a thing yeah. that, that went nowhere. Um, it's just, it's interesting. It's interesting that they, they started so many things that they didn't or couldn't finish. I mean, and then 2005 works out great. Like, it's like the stuff that ends up happening, I'm sure, is better than the stuff, stuff that they wanted to do. But still, it's, it's just, it's, it's unusual. So my gut reaction to why Richards was booked before I did the research and stuff, it was just like, oh, it's the classic Booker philosophy of if you have to make a change on a major match on the show, you give the fans an even bigger surprise to like make it up to like almost remember the story of Joe Punk 2 was that was supposed to be Carino versus Samoa Joe for the world title. And when Carino said like a week before he couldn't work the show, Gabe's thought was we have to have something even bigger so we don't let the fans down. Like we have to reward them for the change in the card. But then I don't think that makes sense because according to, you know, all the reporting Carino, you know, was like, it sounds like he was just late and had an argument. Like, you know, they were expecting him to show up and he in fact did show up at the building and then left immediately. And, you know, if, if, if Richards really was working with the students possibly before the show and all that, like this was, and, and they had more dates booked from this was obviously something planned. And like you said, I don't know how it makes sense when punk already on the books before the show had a feud with Carino that was looked to be about to start. He had a feud with Jimmy Rave. He was going to have a third feud with Stevie and Richards. Like it just, it's it's boggled. I I don't I I like you. I don't I don't get it. It's it's. I would love to know what the thought process was. But well, you I, know, I, I don't send, know. send Stevie Richards a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I don't have Matt. I don't have the guts to do that twice in a week. <laughs> but uh, so so that was the final match. But we still had a little bit to go. Oh, one other note. Um, 
the Pro Wrestling Torch also wrote that Samoa Joe suffered a nasty cut above his left eye, which was visibly slow, swollen while brawling through the crowd with Spanky last Saturday during the main event. So that's something we never see, I believe, because the, Spanky and Joe brawling happens like right at the end of the match. That's what distracts the ref and lets Stevie get, you know, hit the super kick. So apparently he cut and swole, swole, swolled up his eye after the, uh, during that brawl, which is sad, but, um, we go back to uh, Cole Cabana backstage. He is selling his neck from the two matches tonight. He says he has a contractual obligation to finish Good Times Great Memories with Dunn and Marcos. Uh, Dunn at this point is wearing glasses, which for some reason just uh, w- was a big deal to me. It was like a dramatic new character development in the world of Dunn and Marcos. Um, the Ring Crew Express celebrate that they won tonight when Nigel McGuinness interrupts Colt's show again. Nigel's annoyed that he Colt isn't taking things seriously, and he thinks maybe they shouldn't be a tag team anymore. And Colt is meanwhile frustrated that Nigel's saying that and getting mad at him. And he says, like, you know, he's not happy with Nigel's, quote, British mentality. Uh, so the it looks like the incredible two or three match tenure of Nigel McGuinness and Colt Cabana is breaking up, Matt. Which, which, leads, mean, which leads to a few that's probably better. So. Yes, exactly. I'm not. I'm not arguing against the feud, but very quick breakup, which is fine. Um, we then get a video highlight package called "The Rise and Fall of Special K," which shows their highlights from their entire run. We even get some of that original Ring of Honor techno music, which I loved hearing. It was like visiting an old friend, Matt. And then I believe this is going to be the graphic for the show, just because it amused me. They have a graphic. I don't know why I was so amused by it, but at the very end of this highlight clip, they have like a freeze frame of a picture of Special K from the early days, and it says Special K, 2002 to 2005. Like they're like a deceased person at the Oscars and I just started laughing when I saw it and that is the image for this show well I, be the well I will say this Special K never came back you know most yeah. things in wrestling they reach they retread no Special K and this is 16 years later I mean I have a feeling it will come back at some point just because everything does but 16 years that's a long time I'm sure there have been un- unofficial like reunions on indie shows and stuff but okay here's a question for you Matt like could you – like Special K was a gimmick all based around like raver culture. Are raves still a big deal now? I mean I, I guess nothing is a big deal right now at this moment. But like like what would be the 2021 equivalent of a Special K gimmick? Yeah. It, if, you, if you go to a rave now, they're full of Karens, you know? Um, <laughs> is it, would it just be like a group of wrestlers listening to Joe Rogan and doing DMT or something? Like I, I don't I, – I don't know what the equivalent – of special K is today. I'm pretty sure raves like are still things that young people go to. I don't think that rave culture was at its peak even in like 2005. I no. I, I found a clip of like a few years ago of Joe Biden going on about raves in Congress in like 1994, 1995. <laughs> like so, like I don't know what the peak of rave culture was, but I very much remember that like MTV would cover Woodstock '94. And like they would talk, they would they they would show like overnight, like everyone would go to the rave at one of like in one of the tents, and it was like so. Rave raves were things that I feels like 1994. Again, none of this stuff was something that I was ever involved in, so I don't really know. I think there are still raves, but now they would do Molly because that was I don't think a thing in 2005. It was uh, <laughs> ecstasy, right? So that would have been Becky Becky Bayless is a ring name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, de- definitely. That was, there there yeah. would have been a, a woman character named Molly for sure. Yeah. Um, 
But um, yeah, I'm sure um, the DMT would be the name of some move, you know, <laughs> like all the new drugs that I don't know anything about. I don't know uh, anything about the old drugs either, for the record. But. <laughs> Matt, Matt Feuerstein, straight laced. I mean, um, I, that's, I mean, that's actually true. I'm a total nerd. <laughs> so we follow up finally with clips of Dan Moff wrestling Samoa Joe from years ago. Gabe says we have late breaking and tragic news. Dan Moff has been involved in a car accident in the last week and has suffered injuries that will require him to retire from the pro wrestling business. Very abrupt, very like quick, clearly added on like at the last minute. We got to explain this like moment. And like you said earlier, very severe language, like tragic news. You know, <laughs> Require him to retire. I don't know why I'm laughing, but just <laughs> no, it's, it's so, so ridiculous because because it didn't actually happen, and it's so absurd. Yeah, it's just and and that is literally also how the show ends. By the way, that 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 is that is the last segment you see on this show. So um, yeah, they're just like, uh oh, he died. Bye. Like <laughs> it, like we said earlier, like Poochie died. Like Dan Moff died on his way back to planet. Avoid homicidia, like something like that. It just that's the end of it. I, th- I think Dan Moff went to a moat in uh, Ghana. Went to went to a, a palace in in Ghana, and they built a moat, and they put the Ghana army in front of it. So homicide <laughs> wouldn't get in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so Matt, before we get to our opinions on the show, I, I'll, let's uh, let's kind of bookend it with Gabe Sapolsky comments because I I kind of mentioned what he said originally at the start of the show, but I didn't say all of his comments. So we'll go back to what Sapolsky told the Torch after the event. Gabe wrote, the Woodbridge Connecticut show will go down as one of my favorite ever Ring of Honor shows, he tells the Torch. I was just so happy with all the matches from top to bottom. It will actually go down as an important night in Ring of Honor history. James Gibson and Spanky are both now established as main eventers and true Ring of Honor guys. Roderick Strong and Rocky Romero had their breakout singles matches. We started the Stevie Richards angle, which has people talking. We saw the death of the stale special K gimmick as all those guys stepped it up and will now be going in a new direction. The women stepped it up for the first time on the East Coast and proved that women's wrestling has a place in Ring of Honor. We also had a great crowd. Entering the show, we had no intentions of going back to Woodbridge, but the crowd was so good that during the sh- during the show, we booked a return date. It is an example of people supporting the product and us responding by going back. These were fans that came to have fun and enjoy things instead of sitting there and waiting for spots or overanalyzing everything, so they made us want to go back for more shows. It was just a great night. Uh, Gabe says that new tag champs will be crowned on the next show, and Dan Moff will be missed. Um, Matt, I don't agree. I don't agree with a lot of what Gabe said about the show. I did not hate the show, but I thought this was one of the most average middle of the road B show ass B shows we have seen so far from ring of honor. It was a lot of really good wrestlers having really basic three, three and a quarter star matches. Um, even the angles, like knowing that. Like the Stevie Richards thing, which you could argue is the most noteworthy thing on the show, does not go anywhere. It feels like a very inconsequential show and not a show I think even at the time I would have thought of to be one of the best shows this company has done in 61 shows. But, I mean, what do you think? I – because I like the main event so much, I thought it was better than you thought it was, like probably significantly – like I thought it was a, a solid but definitely basic show, like definitely back to basics. But yeah, no, not even close to one of the best shows I've ever done. Um, like you know, even a lot of the stuff that you said Gabe, that you cited through, by Gabe, you know, the stuff that really made him proud of the show doesn't really hold up in retrospect. You know, like the the special K guys going in a new direction, 
you know, not really. They don't really. Um, the uh, you know the women step. You know, like really the women the women's wrestling division. You know, really never gets going in ROH, but it's a long time before it even. You know, they they don't really have many women's matches at all for a while after this. Um, so that's not really that doesn't really portend for good things. The Stevie Richards thing goes nowhere. Um, Strong and Romero, I don't think anyone thinks of their matches on this show as their breakout matches. No, like. cer- certainly not at all. So, so really, this is on the strength of a couple things. Um, like that, that I thought the match was that the show was 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 pretty was pretty solid. Um, which is, I like the main event a lot. I thought the special K match is like a fun kind of novelty for those guys. I thought they did a good job. And James Gibson looked really good. Other than that, yeah, not much to this show. Um, I definitely thought it was better than the trios tournament by like a significant degree. But, and maybe better than it all begins, um, but definitely worse than all the rest of the shows in 2005 so far. I guess the best way to put it is I would say for most – it's not a terrible show to watch, but I wouldn't recommend it except if you're really big like into the history of Ring of Honor. Like uh, I think the word you use, which is perfect, is it's a novelty. Like how many Ring of Honor shows do you see something like Stevie Richards running in a, in a thing that never gets followed up on or a guy no-show the main event basically or even all the different matches we said on the first four matches where guys were kind of playing against type. Like it, it is definitely a show if you watch all the shows, there's kind of – a, a neat little aspect of just oh there's a lot of weird things on this show like weird little or even knowing you're watching the last Dan Moff match because Homicide scares him away from wrestling for three years like it, it's definitely a, a interesting show I think it's more interesting than good yeah I think that's fair but that brings us to the end of the show by the way before you before you end before the next show we have to figure out how to say have a good time have a great time in Danish I looked it up in Google Translate, but I don't want to say it because I might pronounce it wrong and then offend our our, our Danish listeners. Matt, that's perfect because if a Danish listener wants to give us the phonetic spelling for have a good time, have a great time in Danish, they can contact us at through the years at gmail.com. That's T-H-R-O-H for through at Trevor Dame on Twitter. That's D-A-M as in Mother E at Mayor M-G-F. And again there, um, we have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Forums plug section. So, uh, yeah, we, any way you want to get in contact us and let us know about that, we'll be happy to hear it and we'll work that in. Um, next time, we will be covering – if you just want to talk about interesting shows, Matt, the next show we will be covering, the next show on the calendar, Best of the American Super Juniors, that is a Ring of Honor show with a one-night tournament where the winner supposedly – gets to go to the, the the real best of the Super Juniors tournament. There's also a Austin Aries homicide match. Uh, Jimmy Ray saws off a CM Punk stomach tattoo with a cheese grater. There is a – it is the final show for Mark Nolte. There is a ton to discuss crazy things in and out of the ring. And um, – insane kind of stuff. like if, if you thought this show had weird stuff to talk about that next show so many weird stories it's gonna be jam-packed and joe Plus, gag I, and joe gagney well don't let that discourage you. <laughs> the other stuff will make Joe Gagney worth it. So you put up with Joe Gagney to get the good stuff. I mean plus I hear that spanky American Dragon match is real good. So um that yeah that's gonna be a, a really fun show. I'm really looking forward to that one. And so until then until next time Have a good time. Have a great time.